It's a lot to talk about. <laughs> a whole lot to talk about. Okay, we're going to get started. Um, people on live stream, forgive us for starting a little late, uh, but um, better late than never. Uh, so we have several things to do. First of all, we want uh, to give our report backs from Serafina's uh, art auction and from the inter-civilizational dialogue uh, on democracy between India and China. And then we're really going to get into the science of logic, a couple of uh, uh, very poignant and central concepts. Uh, and then uh, a little bit about Sartre's uh, In Search of Method we're going to look at a couple of the footnotes, very, very long footnotes in his text, because uh, it helps uh, to uh, illuminate or clarify some of the um, logical questions being raised by Hegel in Science of Logic. Uh, and uh, just let me say again, because I, I know we're always saying, to ourselves and to other people that listen to us, why are we studying Hegel and philosophy in a time like this? Mm -hmm. And again, I wish to emphasize um, the idea that philosophy is politics by other names. Mm -hmm. Philosophy is a central part of the ideological struggle. The ideological struggle is decisive and strategic to any strategy for social or radical change. You abandon the ideological struggle. You have in effect abandoned the struggle for change or you abandon the ideological struggle. You abandon the struggle for the unity of the people right. against their oppressive class. There's no two ways about it. You abandon the ideological struggle. You have said, in effect, that I'm only in this for a short run. You know, you hear it all the time, young people that marched in 2020 for what they thought was Black Lives Matter uh, are now saying, oh, I'm burnt out. After a year? I mean, come on. What were you in it for? But it is. Um, it manifests a lack of ideological commitment. Uh, the other thing, you abandon the ideological struggle. You say that all you're concerned with is opinions yeah. and not commitment. Uh, so uh, just a couple of quick things uh, on the um, world and economic situation. You probably all know that inflation once again hit a historic mark and the inflation that they're talking about is not the inflation that affects working people young people the lower middle classes uh, it went up to 8.6 percent uh, as reported on friday uh, they thought it was going to moderate at least well they yeah, right. what do they know they the uh, economists, 
you know, again, what do they know and what is economics? Uh, it turns out to be a kind of a speculative uh, uh, opinion mm -hmm. about the economy. Uh, and what they're saying now is that inflation is out of control, which in a sense is a way of saying that the economy is out of control. Um, I mean, it's new for you all, but it's new, period. Yeah. It is new. No, the country has never experienced this. They say 40 years ago, not this. And you listen to the Fed, you listen to Janet Yellen, the tre Treasury Secretary, you listen to all of them. What they're saying is, we don't know what to do. And the other side of this is that, as we've said before, inflation carries political consequences, huge political consequences. And what they know now is that in 2022 and 2024, it is almost a given, a certainty that the Democrats will be swept from political power. Um, but more than that, it's deeper than that. Mm -hmm. The alienation of the people from the government and from the ruling elite. We talk all the time about a crisis of legitimacy where the ruling elite are no longer viewed as legitimate by the people. This is politically the situation we're in. Uh, now, of course, you know, they put on this big uh, performance production of the January 6th hearings. <sighs> uh, you know, they're trying to like replay or redo the Watergate hearings. <laughs> it's all, for, you know, if it, if it were not so serious, you know, it, it's funnier than a Dave Chappelle stand-up. <laughs> I mean, these guys are just crazy and silly. I mean, really silly, I'll put it that way. This is not the way a ruling elite rules. And so the question always going around all of these issues is who's in charge? Obviously not Biden, you know, so who is running the show, who is directing the ship. Uh, so that's huge. The people are feeling it. All of us are feeling it. It's like, you know, um, inflation is like death by a thousand cuts. You know, you know how death by a thousand cuts, you just get cut. Oh, I'm just, oh, that's a little bleak. And it's just more, it's death. It's a slow death as it were. And this is what the American people are experiencing and they know it and they don't want to hear the excuses of this administration, which is, and I have to underline again, never before, maybe except for the period of World War II, has the ruling class been so united we're looking at a united ruling class to stop 
the rebellion of the people. And that's what we're looking at. Uh, that's what the Trump election in 2016 was. And it's not about Trump, it's about opposition uh, to an elite. The rejection of Hillary Clinton was huge because of what she represents. Uh, of course, there's every reason to speculate that the 2020 election was tampered with, if not out and out stolen. And uh, the electoral victory came in states where, for example, Biden won by less than 1% of the votes over Trump. There, I mean, I, or the fact that Biden, who ran for the presidency from his basement of his home, never kind of went out, but he got 10 million more votes than Barack Obama. Right. You know, some people say there were more votes cast than there were registered voters. So it was tampered with, I think. I think there's every reason to believe so. And then the ruling elite can make the claim that to even suggest that means that you are part of a coup d'etat, you know, that you're loyal to uh, Putin and other authoritarians around the world. Uh, just keep, you know, be sensitive to all of this because in a lot of ways, and you know, uh, you guys got to explain this to a generation that in a lot of ways is distracted, confused, uh, uncertain, mm -hmm. fearful, actually, yeah. you know, and alienated. Uh, a generation without a purpose. Mm -hmm. and, and frankly, what brings generations together is when there is a purpose, a larger purpose than just the individual. And young people, so interesting, young people generally, as young people, still have a sky. Mm -hmm. There's still something to believe in, generally. And, you know, the reason that uh, we talk so much about Kendrick Lamar and the rolling out of that CD, just saying to me about Seraphine, I said to uh, Emily and uh, Alice and Michelle yesterday, I, they called, I, I said, um, Oh, this is a this is a very violent young man, and uh, you listen to the track if you get a chance. We cry together. Is that the title? Cry together. I've never heard anything more violent, and this is supposed to be a dispute between a young man and a young woman. Well, if it gets to that point, you you know you're just two seconds away from pulling guns and knives on each other because the, I don't even want. You have to listen to it. He's, and so to do to 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 bring that up, to bring to bring that forward, you have to have a violent heart. And that that person cannot lead a generation that needs hope. Uh, so um, I, I, I say all that to say that the whole working class, is united by 
this economic crisis. And again, inflation, unlike unemployment, that kind of hits and you feel it, inflation is death by a thousand cuts because you don't know, you know, what is going to be the price of a dozen eggs. What's, you know, when a loaf of bread gets up to $5. See, now we're, we're in dangerous territory where people might not be able to eat, you know, where children and mothers and parents won't be able to feed their children, you know. Uh, and, uh, and let's not forget, it was this administration who less than a year ago said, oh, inflation is only transitory. Well, anybody who knows anything about inflation, you know, knows that that's not the case. You know, when it hits, it's because other things have already occurred. I'm, I'm not going to get into that right now. Inflation is complicated. Every inflationary cycle has its own peculiarities. Um, I often talk to Sophie about this at Wharton, but they don't want to talk about this at Wharton. The professors, oh, just keep it on these little narrow technical questions, you know. Um, and uh, but they don't want to talk about the burning questions that affect the great mass of people. And people are afraid and angry, afraid. And you can see it. You ride buses. It's a very brittle social environment, uh, and you just don't know what the outcomes of these will be. The other thing is the war in Ukraine. Um, this is the US war from the very beginning. It, it's very difficult to see it, but when you back a nation into the corner, and you say, we have a right to put nuclear armed missiles that are hypersonic missiles five minutes away from your seat of government. Does that make sense? Where I say I have that right to put in Ukraine nuclear tipped missiles that are hypersonic missiles. Missiles that even the best defenses cannot pick up and that could hit the seat of government in a matter of five minutes. That's an existential threat. That is an existential threat. The Biden administration knew it. They came to power to do exactly what they're doing. That is why the defeat of Trump, and I, this is, you're not supposed to say this, but it's true. They had to defeat Trump in order to carry out the hegemonic empire project. They had to. They, in a lot of ways, people think it's just policy, and it is policy, but it's deeper than policy. They do not have many options. If the system, that they constructed after World War II is to remain in place. The world must abide by, be forced to abide by, or whatever, their rules, quote unquote, rules-based system. 
and who set the rules. Okay. It was an inevitability that they would have to do this. You see what I'm saying? Uh, which raises other very large questions about what is to be done. If they do not have the option of peace, if the ruling class of this country has taken off the table the option of peace and peaceful coexistence, and I'm convinced they have, right? I'm convinced they have, then what is to be done? This is the question. Um, so they're losing in Ukraine. With all of the triumphalism of the last, oh, we beat them at the gates of Kiev. Have you ever thought that that was just a diversion? <laughs> that that was not the main front of battle? They never intended it. They intended their strategy is the Clausewitzian, Clausewitz strategy. You don't take territory, you defeat the opposition's army, the bulk of the Ukrainian army, and they were very well trained, very well dug in, are in the east, Donbass. That's where Ukraine wanted to fight. They did. That's where the uh, Western, Western governments, especially the Biden administration, wanted them to fight. That's why their best soldiers, hundred up to 100,000 troops, by the way, deeply dug in. So you defeat them there, you defeat them. And they're losing. Now, um, and they've lost the diplomatic war. And we, you know, remember we talked about this with the UN General Assembly vote where uh, not uh, almost half the African nations abstain, which to me was so, I mean, I would never have expected it. I really would not have, given the neo-colonization of the African continent. You know what I'm saying? But they did. 54 nations, something like 24 abstain, including Senegal, that is the chairman at this time of the African Union, okay? I would never have expected Senegal to not go along with the Western. I mean, never. I mean, given the history from their time of independence, you know, but they did. And then from the standpoint of the United States to add, quote, insult to injury, the African Union just last week sent a delegation to Moscow to meet with Putin, yeah, which included the president of Senegal, very distinguished looking man, if I might say, uh, as the head of the African Union. This on the heels of India standing up to the United States. And the foreign minister of India is an exceptional man. He doesn't uh, take any insults lightly. 
and he speaks his mind, he, you know, un, in an undiplomatic way, especially when addressing the Western countries and the United States, who were talking about imposing secondary sanctions upon India, because it entered into a rubles and rupee <laughs> agreement, the two currencies for the trade in oil and gas, I think gas too, but see this thing of going against and around the dollar. This, I mean, hey, let me tell you that this is unheard of. This is itself a tantamount to, and I put quotes, you know, a revolution because you're saying that the reserve currency is no, the dollar that is, all trade is denominated in dollars. So if India trades with Russia, they don't use their own currencies. They don't barter, they use the dollar, you know? Um, and the implications of this are way beyond anything that I can tell you about. It's, I don't think anybody really understands this financial system. You know, uh, again, Sophie and I were rapping on this. And um, what's his name? James Oz, James Toes. Oh, Toos? Toos, yeah, James, you know, who was talking about what the sanctions regime that the West, I mean, these unbelievable sanctions. And they did something that had, against Russia, something that had never been done in modern memory and in, in modern history. They sanctioned the central bank of the country. I mean, see, now you're going somewhere that's never been gone to. You are saying that you want to destroy the currency and the economy of that nation and make it impossible for them to pay its, their creditors or for them to even enter into trade with other nations. Because if, let's say, Russia trades with, um, uh, uh, let's say, uh, France, well, the way they do it is that Russia will send, let us say, gas to France, and France has uh, dollars in its central bank, and it will pay into the Russian central bank. A lot of the trade between nations is mediated through their central banks. You know, that's the way people do things. That's the rational way, even under capitalism, even under trading, a world trading system, which is unfair because of the exorbitant privileges of the US dollar. So it's unfair to a certain extent, gives the United States privilege to print money, to go into debt, to do a lot of things. But nonetheless, you know, you work with what history has left you with. And that's what, but then you sanction a central bank, you want to throw their currency into a downward spiral of devaluation. You want to kill them. And thus, 
when you put all the pieces together using Ukraine for these nuclear weapons, these hypersonic missiles, you know, where I can, I can kill Putin in five minutes, you never know what hit it. That's what they were talking about, you know? And so it would be suicide not to defend yourselves. And they had, you know, by the way, they had made every kind of appeal to the Biden administration, a new architecture, you know, uh, of uh, nuclear defense. Uh, NATO pulled back from our borders, please, you know. But, you know, Blinken and that uh, a cat that looks like a serial killer from the movie Halloween. Yeah. Oh, it's a big joke. Ha, ha, ha. They, you know, Russians had sent them this, you know, uh, document in diplomatic legal terms. They wrote some, you know, little uh, memo back, you know, ha, ha, ha type of thing. And so at that point, the Russians said, no, they could do no more. In fact, had the Putin regime not pursued this path, they would have been overthrown by their own people. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was, yeah. And if they do not continue it to victory, Putin will be overthrown. That, I mean, it's just that real to them. See, when you say, and I, I spent a lot of time in the Soviet Union and got a sense of the people and you know their soul, their heart. You say Nazis to them, they don't think about the Jewish Holocaust first. Mm -hmm. They think about 27 million Russians, Soviet oh, citizens okay. killed. When they say, you know, for example, we want Ukraine denazified, we what they're saying is we want these people who carry a replica of the Nazi swastika mm -hmm. around Ukraine, we want them eliminated from your political system because they now and in the past represented an existential threat to us. That is how real it was. You know, and all this propaganda and ha ha, you know, all this, this, this. <laughs> See, for the Russians and for the Ukrainians that have an ounce of historical memory, you know, uh, this thing, this ain't going away, you know, because everybody has a relative, at least one, but probably more, who were killed in that war. I was in Leningrad, the um, the three year siege, where the Nazis cut that city off from water, from food. People were eating dogs and even cannibalism. Uh, I think they say over 300, maybe a million people died in the siege of Leningrad. I was in Stalingrad, you know, the great battle of Stalingrad, where they pushed, where they began the defeat to push the Nazi army back. And, you know, I saw that. I saw the monuments. Yeah reaching up to the sky. Then people are not jiving about this. And, and so 
And so that's why I keep saying that Gorbachev thing, he was an agent of the West. You lost it. He destroyed the Soviet state, not just to change the Soviet Union, however you want to change it, but to deprive a people of a state, the state that goes back to Peter the Great, by the way, you know what I'm saying? Um, and such. So that's where we are with that. But if that were not enough to have on our plate, right. <laughs> the Secretary of Defense Austin in um, Singapore, in having this big Asian meeting of defense ministers, he gives a speech. And you know, Biden a few weeks ago in Japan said that the United States would militarily defend Taiwan against China. Okay. Now, you know, in 1979, when diplomatic relations were established between China and the United States, the principle, a fundamental principle, was the one China policy that Taiwan is a part of China as is Hong Kong, but the question of Taiwan. And then in the 1990s, there was a further elaboration of the one China policy. And that as one China, uh, the Chinese nation had a right to reincorporate Taiwan into historic China, a historically constituted nation, not something that somebody made up. You know what I'm saying? This is not Xi Jinping or Mao Zedong or somebody evil intentions against democracy. China as historically constituted has a right to self-determination as a historically constituted nation. You see what I'm saying? Uh, there is no, you don't play with that. Um, it is a question of sovereignty. And now, of course, China is in a position to assert its right to self-determination. Wasn't always in that position. You see what I'm saying? Uh, but now it is. So, uh, what's, his, what's his first name? Also, Lloyd Austin. <laughs> I like to forget him because, given you know the black, I'm, I'm embarrassed by these <laughs> bums that parade as black people. Um, all that we fought for for peace and Muhammad Ali and King and everything, and now we end up with this trash, you know. Um, but he goes over there, of course, this is the Biden. Biden had gone over there talking shit in, in Japan. We're going to do this, that, and the other. So a lot of people around the world say, well, he's, he's slowed off. He's liable to say anything. But now it comes out that they have a, a double policy. Let him be the front man, and then we'll come behind him, so-called cleaning up his statement but really not cleaning it up. So on Taiwan, Lloyd Alston came out yesterday and said, we are going to defend 
Taiwan. And it's almost the same as the Ukraine strategy. We're going to send them as much weaponry as necessary. And we don't like China flying near the Taiwanese so-called, not over Taiwan, but near what Taiwan has established as its, um, what do you call it, no fly or, you know, some, some made up shit, you know? And so the Chinese, we haven't flown over Taiwan. And so the Chinese are saying, but why are you United States sailing aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Straits? We're not coming over to your country with no stuff, you understand? And this is part of our territory, you know? So why are you getting upset or exaggerating this? So I think it is today the Chinese defense minister is to speak. Uh, I look forward to it, but they've already said, sir, and they, they, the Chinese, and this is very different from the governments of, uh, who were the two between Deng and Xi Jinping? Uh, I forget their names. Yeah, Zhang yeah, Zemin. Yeah, Zhang yeah, Zemin. Yeah, yeah. Very, I mean, I, <laughs> to put it mildly, they, they were not strong at all, but China was in a weak position. Today, the Chinese speak, and they speak right back to the United States. And what they're saying, is we're not going to be bullied. If you want war with us on our territory, we will fight you. You know what I'm saying? Um, now, is it just brinksmanship or are these people that dumb? You know, brinksmanship is just taking things to the edge and seeing what your opponent does with the intent maybe of backing off, you know? We don't fully know. We don't fully know. But one thing we know is that all of this war talk and war actions, and Ukraine is the American war by proxy. This is an American war, you know? America's invested too much diplomatically, politically, financially, and militarily. It's an American war with the proxy uh, of the uh, Ukrainian army, which has been defeated. But now you're going to go to China? Everybody knows, I don't care how much weaponry you give to Taiwan, they can't. China's just too powerful, too disciplined and too united. The Chinese state, uh, maybe we'll talk about this when we get to the uh, review of the uh, dialogue. The Chinese state is the most developed and sophisticated state on the planet. The state, they're ideologically coherent, politically united. Um, and, you know, they have this benefit of, of a 3,000 year bureaucracy, so they know how to do bureaucracy. Uh, so they have all of these highly 
intelligent, highly competent people. It's not like the US deep state where you don't know who, whether these people even clothed in their right minds or on dope even, you know. But the Chinese state, they do know how to have, you know, they the testing and of the so it is a coherent, sophisticated state. They speak with one voice. A lot of people say, well, they're just mouthing the party line. Well, whatever line it is, they speak with one voice. Yeah. It's not, they're not fussing and fighting in public. You understand? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's very important, by the way. <laughs> so the United States, I don't think, given what has happened in the Ukraine, and what the Russian military, with a army not the size of the Ukrainian army, by the way. The Ukrainians have more soldiers in the field than the Russians have. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. But tactically and strategically and technologically, they've defeated them. The other thing is people are talking about that the uh, Ukrainian army it's having to desertions. People are saying, what are we fighting for? You know, who, you know, and Zelensky and those people are telling people, well, fight to the end, fight to the last person. You have nothing to lose but your life. Yeah. You can't say, but I'm 19 years old. What are you yeah. talking about? <laughs> but anyway, so uh, that's kind of the world situation. Just one thing. I don't know if anybody saw the article about this poll that Johan sent out the poll that showed that the majority of American people are against this war in Ukraine and US support for the Ukrainians. This is huge. It goes along with what we have observed, you know, and I, I talked to Emily, I talked to other people about, you know, why is it that this is not viewed as a major political fact by the left? <laughs> yeah. Got to put inverted commas all the time because you don't know. It's just, you know, it's like it's just just like being transgender. You know, I call myself a woman, although I still have a penis. You know, I'm excuse. I don't mean to be too graphic, but you know, I'm, saying, I'm calling myself the left without, you know, am I the left or am I liberal? Am I man? Am I woman? Am I am I a man with a wig? An address on you, you know what I'm saying? You can't, it's not just what you say, it's what the objective characteristics and qualities of your politics are. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if I say I'm left, then the first thing I'm going to ask you, what is your attitude towards the masses of people? Then you come back and say, well, I don't like most of them because they don't like transgendered people or they're white supremacists or they just white, you know, or, you know, whatever. <clears throat> so you say, well, oh, but you're left, right? Yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm postmodern left. So what does that mean? So it, it's a, I mean, I'm just, I, I'm, I know I'm talking about but it, it just becomes a, um, they have to be exposed. I was saying this to Nandatha because she was very uh, upset with the Indian left and, and their indifference to questions 
of peace in uh, China and India, a kind of a contemptuous, uh, almost grotesque kind of uh, indifference to this burning question, you know? Uh, and I said, you know, in this struggle, you'll find that your major enemies as you go forward tend to be people who call themselves left and progressive. In other words, you can't hardly engage the ruling class because you're always fighting these, um, these bushfires, these um, detractors and, and frauds, you know, and they fight you at certain times more than the ruling class does. I don't know that that makes sense. The ruling class might not even see you as a threat. So they say, oh, let them talk, let them do. But the so-called left is waging an out-and-out -out struggle against you. So your main enemies prior to the period of, of revolutionary upsurge tend to be people who claim to be like you. You see, so the left, a left without the working class? When in history was that the case? You know what I'm saying? And then they say, well, I'm a Marxist. They say, well, what kind of Marxist? Well, I'm a Marxist with a feminist and a transgender turn on him. Well, I'm a Marxist with a Garveyist, cultural nationalist. You can't have a synthesis of incompatible um, theories. But so you ask, if the majority of American people are anti-war, is this not? And should it not be an overarching political fact in understanding the world moving forward? And why isn't it? Why is this never outside of us? And I would say, perhaps we alone keep saying the same thing. The American people are more anti-war today than they were at the height of the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War. Can you imagine that? But they can't imagine it because the people who are anti-war in their eyes are white supremacists. You see what I'm saying? Uh, so there, there's nothing of value that these people are capable of. Isn't that something yeah. to say that about your own people? Martin Luther King would never say that, by the way. Never that the American people are beyond anything positive. And that's what they're saying. And if you don't go along with it, well, you're a collaborator with white supremacy, okay? The other side of this, two other things I, I just wanted as political facts. The, um, that the United States today is less racist than it was 50 years ago. 
less racist today than it was at the height of the uh, struggle for black freedom. Okay, don't mean we're where we have to be. But like you say, you know, in military terms, preparing the battlefield for struggle. This is all positive. Anti-war, we don't want war no more. We've been lied to rewards also. That's what the American people, plus the inflation and yada yada. 53% with all the propaganda and everything are against the war in Ukraine. Then to add insult to injury, 16%, of the people polled said that they would prefer Putin as the president <laughs> over Biden. Uh, I, I, I shared it, I'll share it again. I mean, this, you're talking about crisis of legitimacy, yeah. <laughs> when they would prefer the quote, main enemy as your president to <laughs> the president that was quote, democratically elected, which also gets to the issue that a whole lot of people don't believe that Biden was democratically elected, that the elect they believe the election was stolen. Whether, let's say it wasn't stolen. The fact that so many people believe that it was is a political fact that you cannot overlook. The third thing I, I just want to say, and this is, um, this is in terms of going forward. And I, I, I consider all of these things, the anti-war, the, uh, the growing anti-racism, all of this is the further um, out, uh, outcomes of the civil rights movement. Okay? And the third thing, the American people are more a single nation today than it's ever been in the history of this country. What do we mean by a single nation? We ain't there yet. But more Americans see themselves as somehow the same people. Right? The test is always the attitude of the majority of the people to the Black people of the country. Now, I just say that it's not all straight, all, all I's dotted, all T's crossed. But somehow people are through the music they prefer, through the art, through the culture, through the ideas. The American people are ready for great um, radical revolution of values. If the American people see themselves more or less as a single people, that means that there is no white solution to the problems of a nation, okay? There is no black solution to the problems of a nation. It's like King said, the world house a single garment of destiny, okay? With all, and, and you know, I know myself, I, 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 um, 
like most black folk, we're very, very upset with a lot of things going on in our community. Very upset, this violence. You can't, I can't, you can't talk, you know, like when black people talk to each other, it's different when they talk to non-black people. You know, I have to tell you, but always, you know, we're so angry at this. We, you know, and we're, we're seeing the threads, uh, the causal threads in a whole lot of things, including the imposing upon a whole generation of black young people, a culture that does not give them a sky, a culture that normalizes violence and thugism. We never had, ain't, ain't nothing in our culture and our music that ever normalized the thug and the killer and the Glock as symbols of, of manhood. We, ne we never had it. We never had it. And where does it come from? Where does it come from and why? Of course, you impose that type of culture upon a people who are already in distress, deindustrialization. You know what I'm saying? No education worth the word. So, but I think, you know, that we can find our way out of this and already around the country, from the churches, from the civic organizations, people are standing up in the face of this gun violence. And, and ministers are saying, if you're gonna kill somebody, kill us. Don't kill these children. This between these thugs with guns, and and really, when when the liberals and the so-called radicals came out with defund the police, that reverberates up to this day. Black people ain't going to defund the police. We're always for the democratization of the police reform. What you gonna leave us? with no protection, we ain't got that much as it is, you know? And that's been one of the issues. You cannot say that the drug dealer, the thug, uh, the random uh, bully can just dominate our communities. We ain't gonna accept it. We are angry with everything put on top of it. I, so I, I, I would say, you know, let's keep our eyes open because there is, you know, there might be a wellspring mm -hmm. of resistance that we will draw upon, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. we, and we, you know, because there's too much in our history, in our past. This is, this don't define us, you know, shooting randomly on South, that, who are you? I don't care, eight to 80 or whatever, you know? And then of course, we gotta get this toxic culture out of our homes and out of our schools and out of our communities. And, and you know, I'm saying to Serafina, maybe I said it, I was listening to most of the Kendrick Lamar CD. Uh-uh, you can't tell me nothing. We cry together. Listen to that if you can. First of all, have you listened to it, Jerry? 
it's one of the most violent things I ever listened to. Mm-hmm. And for is that the, and for a cat to spew that, it must, it's something inside him to start with. You ain't that nice guy trying to find your way, and I don't want to be your, all that old perpetration. You're very violent. That is, I mean, I, I to me it was the most violent thing I ever heard. A, a man and his wife or girlfriend arguing. I mean, if that's the way you are, why don't y'all just go and get knives and guns and kill each other? You calling me the B word and you could, I mean, God. And if children, if parents can't discern, and and they have little kids and their children are hearing that from infancy, you know, if they hear that, a man calling a woman the B word and she calling him the, now I'm from a, a rough neighborhood. I ain't never heard people argue like that, that bad. You know what I'm saying? Um, what are you, and you're gonna say, well, I'm from Compton? Well, I'm from North Philly, man. So what? No. And then the question of the artist as an agent. So you're just a, a messenger of bad time. No, no, no. But you said it's irresponsible. But I'll, I'll stop there. Um, and I guess we'll, um, Jahan is not here yet. So <laughs> he's five minutes away. Oh, he's five minutes. So we'll start with, uh, with uh, Serafina's uh, art auction. Uh, so since it was your art auction, we won't start with you. Oh we'll I see. was about to say. Okay. You want to start with you? Let Emily, <laughs> let Emily go first. <laughs> Just well, to describe it and what, you know. Well, so last Saturday after free school, um, Serafina held an art auction to, you know, auction off, but also mainly to display her art pieces, um, which I think mainly were produced in 2021. So it seems like your art is also changing a lot with the times. And there are some pieces from 2022. Um, but Serafina gave an artist statement of making an assertion of, you know, in the context of today, what is art? But then how does she understand the role of the artist, especially in the struggle for peace, democracy, and freedom? Um, and the artist as a revolutionary. Um, but I also wanted to bring up that, you know, I was at the I was um, at the Phillips collection where Jacob Lawrence has half of his Great Migration series, and I never realized that he was he spent time in Philadelphia, but then moved to Harlem in I think the twenties and thirties or something. But he talks about how he grew up going to the Schomburg, like his local library was the Schomburg. And he would grow up just like reveling at American history. Like for him, that was kind of his dessert. Like he would just ravenously read on history and American history. And that's why he wanted to, as an artist, he wanted to share to the youth, just like him, the beauty of American history, that there's struggle to be found. And I was just reminded of that um, at your auction, like for you, you also see being an artist as it's not just simply aesthetic. 
but it's mm -hmm. something ideological. It's, mm -hmm. It has to be at the center of ideological struggle. Mm -hmm. And with that, I'll pass it to Serafina. Now look, pass it to Kathy first. And then <laughs> so why would <laughs> Serafina go first? Okay. Yeah. Why? <laughs> well, you don't want to um, right, brother. That's a fair way. Okay, okay. Well, I will say um, maybe a few thoughts, and I have, I really should reflect on this more. Um, it was quite a beautiful experience because um, if you were there, it was um, in the Boston Street Gallery, Family's Gallery, but then. Um, um, I will, I think, I've never been to an art auction, I will, but I do think a lot of the times when you are at an art auction in this, you know, stage of capitalism and where the world is going, it feels like usually it is um, a club of the ultra rich and um, you, you, you're seeing art in a very specific way and I think it has to do with the way culture and art has become so commodified in the art market being such a determining factor in the value literally or even the ideological value of artwork and it's like really so secretive often you know the people who are bidding are um, not even bidding themselves they're making their little like assistants um, bid for them and then only afterwards that you really or something you don't even know who's buying this artwork um, and then how much money gets dropped at all these auctions it's really crazy mm -hmm. so when we had our the offer first of all it felt like i mean everyone who put it together did a really excellent yeah. job yeah. really i i can i know that the art the catalog and the postcards are you no know, we're no joke but it's also just to i mean um there's the logistical piece yeah. of that really beautifully done and um having the artist statement having it be really um a way to see free school ideas um you know in some ways manifested and uh, not just translated but really um worked upon in an artistic form i was just saying to doc i think like i don't know where it would school or even the city be if we didn't have someone like Serafina. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. Sort of taking all the ideas that we're talking about in preschool into the realm of art and uh, art that's for the people. And, and um, yeah, and so I think that was really special. And then it's just, it was also a fun auction, which is why I started this whole thing about what the art auctions are not often that fun. <laughs> They're just usually so serious or silly or weird and just um, so, um, I don't know, decadent. And yet, like, we ended up, like, yeah, having quite a beautiful experience because it was really remarkable. We're like, maybe this is what art is like, what we're saying, like our art does bring us together rather than, you know, turn us into a competition for who's, <laughs> well, I guess there's a part of it that's like a little bit of the bidding, but it was still, it was for the right reasons. So that's all I was gonna say. Everyone did a great job and it was really special to see it. And it made me really appreciate everything that you're doing. We also discovered <laughs> Someone with a secret gift for your auctioneering. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I think it was such a honor to work with Serafina and Emily throughout the process as well, because I guess it goes along with what Doc, you have said before, where the message is the messenger. And it's not that Serafina is like, you know, like the perfect artist or like anyone, like, you know. <laughs> but the thing is, throughout the process, you could, like, I think both Emily and I could see that she was trying. You know, there were fears of what does art look like in this time? And what does it mean to be a revolutionary artist in this time? Like, what are the challenges, like the doubts that you face? Um, in this sort of environment where art is not is not beautiful. And I think in that process, you also saw Serafina trying to figure out like, what is it that made her, like where she drew her strength from and where she draws her art from as well. And I think a huge piece that came through was this connection to history. Like, you know, some of my favorite works was one called um, Learning to Read and then the other being Womanhood. Um, and I think that's also comparable to what we've been studying as free school, or even Emily was saying through Jacob Lawrence, you know, artists that reflected the times, but also the optimism and the hopes and the strivings. Um, and Serafina has been mentioning this word, and I don't know where it's coming from, but she's been saying ascend a lot. And that comes with. Oh, that's about Oh, <laughs> I don't know if she's been using transcend as much, but she's been using the word ascend a lot. And I think mm -hmm. it fits into this theme that Doc, you were also saying of the sky, of what are the things that youth should strive towards or ascend towards, um, much like a sky that you look up to. Uh, I think it's also apparent through the different paintings that there is a sky you know I mean there's also like the bright mm -hmm. colors but then also the people like mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and I think that was the most that was the part of the process that I remember a lot of where you know these questions of what is the artist and what does it mean to be an artist in these times um and then also I think as preschool we had a lot of fun together <laughs> <laughs> and you found talents uh, so. <laughs> If I may add. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll say. Um, I don't know where to start. I appreciate everybody's help, honestly, and I think that. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to do something like that a couple of years ago. But, you know, it's true that both Emily and Alice saw a different, not really a different side, but it's just like, okay, well, what is my life going to be for, basically? <laughs> um, as for the statement, I was nervous about it because I thought, you know, more of the people who I know in my circles would come. But I guess it's, okay, on the one hand, it's an auction, so people don't have money to spend, so they won't come. I can see that, but you know, there's the ideological things that I was reflecting about. And to what Alice was saying, 
I do have these doubts because I'm not so obvious or like really in the front of my mind thinking about how much of a difference I am doing in art as opposed to other people who are doing or making art in this time and stuff. So I know that it, I know I'm not, I know even though people know me, I'm not like a popular, like, okay, you go to Serafina, like as you know, other artists that you guys won't know, but if I name them in other circles, they they would know. But um, I only say that to say that this event and also talking about it today, I know is significant because it just helped me further concretize what I need to do. And I think ever since I started really coming to free school, I saw, seriously, you know, it was, it made it clear to me that one, I am an artist and that's really all, you know, the only thing I can really do. But also my art is good because it has a purpose underneath it there's something that I'm it's like there's um um it's it's just political it's political art um that's not the only thing to explain it as but it's the fact that I'm not afraid to be so in a time where um it it's easy to be afraid. But like we're saying, if the majority of people are against the war in Ukraine, how come artists can't stand for peace? It doesn't make sense. Um, but stuff like that has made me just become more confident, but I don't know what else to say. But another thing that kind of has happened because of the statement in particular, I was coming back about it, um, is that uh, I was thinking about the statement and how people have responded to it on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people in preschool, they liked it. But then there's others who also felt like the message had something to say. Um, and I shared it both on Instagram and Facebook. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just thinking like, you know, I wouldn't really wanna keep, like I would like to have these ideas shared in a more objective and definite way um, in like a kind of like magazine or something like that. But I didn't want to be the only one to run the said magazine or to write it by my lonesome, um, like I do other things. But I was I I I I had an idea to start like a kind of like artist book club, and so I did like a little poll on Instagram to see who want to come, and about like twenty people responded, uh, mm -hmm. and they they um. So I'm thinking about maybe meeting like once a month. We will still do the Du Bois stuff. <laughs> seriously that's just what i do i just pick up more stuff to do right but um and i was thinking we would still maybe meet at the ccb more center and we start with the baldwin creative process so there's people who i know who want to come to free school and things like that and there's um you know other stuff or reasons why they don't want to come but maybe that will also like i, I had told you about it and Doc had told me that it's about developing your um, comrades or something like that. And, you know, a part of the ideological struggle. Mm -hmm. And also in reflecting about the 10th anniversary and why free school was even, I think, made was to develop um, 
people so that we can struggle for peace and democracy. And that is the same thing for artists and we have the same responsibility. So um, that's why I was thinking, I, was, I thought that it would be okay to do that, but um, that's all. That's great. I think you're one of the best artists in Philadelphia already um, from what I've seen, yeah. from what I've seen. And but we could talk about that more, right. but I think your vision is the strongest, most powerful vision among the artists in the city. I don't care how young or how old you are. Um, you have a vision and I, you know, I think the work that you auctioned this past weekend was the best work I've seen of yours. That's good. I hope it gets better in that way. Yeah. Well, I think, I know it's gonna get better. I know it's gonna evolve, but already it stands up to everything that I know about art in Philadelphia. And and I think just as quick, I talk too much, but you are engaging the ideological questions of this time. Most artists that I know, young, old, and in between, are running from them. That makes you different. So, okay, now we'll move on to um, uh, Jahan, Sumbarta, and uh, Jeremiah to talk about the inter-civilizational dialogue and democracy. Uh, okay, okay. Just to say a little bit about it for those who aren't familiar with what happened. Uh, last uh, Sunday, there was an event which was many months uh, in the making. Essentially, it was, well, it was organized primarily by our free school members who were based in India building off uh, some of the events we did last year for the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party of China. The idea was to, to have a dialogue, uh, inter-civilizational dialogue between representatives of China and India about the concept of democracy. And the, the crucial thing was that to be unmediated by the West, the Western Academy, the Western gaze, the Western ideas. I mean, that was, that was the goal, that was the ideal. Um, and so, uh, of course, as uh, I've heard this morning, uh, you've talked already. You've already talked a bit about the significance of Asia, and particularly India, China, and so on. Uh, so th that was very much in the context. I mean, those two speakers from uh, China was uh, Professor Zhang Waiwai, who's a very distinguished uh, Chinese uh, thinker and academic and also former uh, translator for Deng Xiaoping and other government officials. And I would say he's the, so far, he's the most uh, impressive English speaking Chinese intellectual I've come across. He's, you know, communicates with international audiences and so on. And his writings on the Chinese model are, are very significant. Mm -hmm. And then representing um, on the Indian side primarily was uh, this gentleman, uh, retired ambassador MK Bhadra Kumar. He's a career diplomat who represented India in multiple countries, uh, especially in the Middle East and retired as a, as a full ambassador to Turkey and also writes on foreign affairs at Indian Punchline is the name of his blog and other public publications in India in the English language. So, uh, and there are some other representatives from India as well, other distinguished people who are, uh, spoke a bit, uh, one former advisor to previous prime minister of India um, some others, uh, retired civil servants and other intellectuals, and then a number of people from free school from the United States as well. Um, and uh, so, I mean, that was essentially the format of what happened. Uh, and then there are a number of ideas discussed, 
Primarily, uh, the uh, Ambassador Pradeep Kumar talked more about just the current situation with in Ukraine, um, the de-dollarization, the possibility of the multipolar world, but in his words, also the danger of chaos. Um, Professor uh, Zhang talked about, uh, kind of gave an overview of some of his work on the, describing the China model, the Chinese ideas of democracy, the difference between Western multi-party democracy and the kind of people's democracy that China has attempted to build and uh, the results that it's shown in terms of its success in poverty alleviation and development, education. Um, and uh, some, he talked a bit also about some of the contributions that can have for the world, especially the developing world to learn from the third world and some of the ways in which China can be a stabilizing force, peaceful force in um, international relations. Um, and, and then there was, you know, a, a discussion that touched upon a number of things. I don't know if you guys want to add anything about the discussion. Uh, well, I mean, I can add uh, to you know, like, what the two main speakers are also talking about. But I think what Gahan mentioned about you know, what Tom Hatsukumar was saying, I think it was a discussion on, on you know, this dialogue, which is very popular today regarding democracy and authoritarianism and how these tensions between the West and Russia, they have um, they have a historical evolution since the Russian Revolution. So we, um, in order to understand the situation and the discourse today, we do have to go back to the last century. And you know, during the Russian Revolution and the Second World War and and the Cold War after after that. But I mean, his his talk was mainly clarifying. Uh, for us to understand that in or order to see the crisis in Ukraine today and especially uh, India's role, I mean, you touched upon this in the beginning of your, of your presentation today, that um, so India's role today is is seen in um, you know, under a lot of confusion. There are um, so there are a lot of sides which see India's position as merely uh, like you know playing the safe route and not taking a stand but this has a history that you know india's relationship with russia is an old relation and and how in order to understand in in india's position today and it's not just india but it's it's you know the historical enemies of india which are you know the pre-partition pakistan and all, all of that so you know in order to see through the crisis in ukraine we need to see how um, we need to see what role the West played in uh, in pushing forward the uh, dismemberment of the, of, the, of the Soviet Union and how 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 that um, how this crisis has a history and also so to to you know what way we talked about Zhang we talked about I think I mean his talk was mainly regarding the Chinese model of development I mean he kept touching upon this conversation that we have regarding democracy and authoritarianism and he kept bringing it back to a question of good and bad governance mm -hmm. which is i think which is a question which is not you know which is not at the forefront of, of of people's consciousness today because we are so taken in by this rampant dialogue about democracy and authoritarianism and i mean the other way the chinese state has progressed since the chinese revolution and of course af after the 70s I think this question of how the Chinese state is in its place today, in order to see this, we have to uh, go back to the questions of what it means to have legitimate rule 
which leads to good governance. And I mean, he was going back to the main attributes of the Chinese state model, which derives its legitimacy from uh, um, from you know Confucian thought, and you know this question of legitimacy that comes from the people, and how in a vast country like China today we cannot talk simply in terms of procedural democracy and and you know they have a system of selection and election mm -hmm. and it's it's i think it's a it's a robust system which requires a lot of deep study mm -hmm. for all people because of its contributions to humanity at this point uh yeah and so about the discussion that followed there was a lot of uh, uh interesting conversations regarding the discussion from this i think there is a lot of suspicion at this point in the west but unfortunately also in india regarding how india is to view china there is a lot of uh, historical conflicts which i mean the idea is, is is to transcend them and i think there has been effort from both sides in recent times to transcend the um, the border crisis and so on and so forth but i, I think still there is a lot of these conflicts on um, on people's minds which the conversation in general, it's, it's a conversation that has never been had before. And it's the starting point uh, to engage people in understanding China, not through a Western lens, mm -hmm. but, you know, but um, uh, yeah, but through these other attributes of the Chinese model. Yeah, yeah just to add what we've already said, one of the interesting I guess questions and points of discussion was about, you know, what would, what does the uh, actual dialogue between India and China look like? And what are the sort of assumptions that go into the dialogue? Because I believe it was um, Mr. Sudhinja Kulkarni, who has also previously spoken at events, um, who is sort of raising this question of like, you know, he, he seemed disappointed that they weren't actually having a dialogue, but then he kind of came with this, he kind of, he was implying basically, you know, that China should learn from India, but only primarily in the sense of China should become more liberal. But then that raised an interesting question where Nanita talked about how, I think there is an assumption that what makes India a democracy is because it is roughly, you know, similar to the Western model of liberal democracy. But then Anita was like, I think we actually need to investigate and know what defines India as a civilization and its state currently and historically. Um, and I thought, yeah, and I think that that is still, it seems an open-ended question, even from, you know, the Azadi discussion um, this week where we were talking about, yeah, the Indian state and how it's evolved. But one thing that the, or a few things that the discussion made me think about were the fact that, you know, especially with the whole Russia-Ukraine situation and the third world or global south of non-Western countries um, leaning more towards Russia, there's this kind of, the way that Western uh, intellectuals interpret this is that, is is primarily through the lens of realism, like that this sort of school of realism where they can only see it through the lens of, oh, these countries have their own kind of cold 
interests and they're just trying to basically they only are like not sanctioning Russia because they have these interests and um and actually that's also been you know one of you know there's the dominant stream in American discourse of the neocons right now who are purely just basically want to destroy everything um and they want to bring the world into yeah essentially like a world conflict but then there's you know the sort of those who challenge the neo-composition but are coming from this sort of real so-called realist mm -hmm. philosophy where they're saying you know it's a shame that america was so extreme with its sanctions policy because now we're driving you know russia india china together when actually we could have brought russia and india over to our side to attack china and so it's, it's kind of like it's such a I don't know it's just such a limited and it's a mm -hmm. it's it's still a philosophy which doesn't really have a view of the future and is you know still trapped within these kind of i don't know you could call it realism or like the westphalian thing mm -hmm. of you know nation states and that is the primary way that countries operate but i think there is still you know the the open question of yeah like the multipolar world and can you know the non-west assert a new paradigm for relate like international relations for a basic philosophy of governance but of you know yeah a truly world democracy that um the boys envision mm -hmm. and i think the only the other the other thing that i was thinking about with the with the dialogue was how um it, it reminded me of Du Bois's The World in Africa, where he mm -hmm. talked about how in some ways it was the the kind of seed of Pan-Africanism came mm -hmm. from, you know, enslaved peoples who were brought to the United or to the West, mm -hmm. um, to the Americas, mm -hmm. because you had all these different groups from Africa being brought together for the first time, mm -hmm. and they, you know, they spoke many different languages, but it was from there that was the seed of, you know, the realization that there could be unity. Um, and it were, and I and I only thought about it because although the dialogue was um, yeah the 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 hope was that it could be outside of you know the Western the Western gaze and Western standards I do think that there is still the importance of the fact that like even the free school specifically that we bring together some different people from representatives of many different <coughs> kinds of civilizations um, in America and that that has opened the door towards seeing just the basic logic of unity between mm -hmm. civilizations mm -hmm. in a way which can be i think perhaps a little bit obscured i don't know if you're in that country because of all of the discourse that goes around not just like india china but also china and like japan south mm -hmm. korea mm -hmm. you know that whole situation and so um so yeah those are some of my impressions and i think i i really appreciated uh yeah john way and how he was able to just very straightforwardly um, mm -hmm. and without much, you know, he wasn't, you know, being, he wasn't like bragging or anything. He was just saying like, you know, the, this is our, this is the civilizational heritage of China. This is how it has played out. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even this thing of like reform or how can China improve? I think he takes it very seriously, but you get the sense of, you know, the way that they understand this this question of how can they improve their governance in China is, you know, they set ten goals for themselves. And they say like we want to eliminate poverty, we want to do X, Y, Z, 
and they say after a certain, certain period, okay, which goals were we able to achieve, which were we not able to achieve, mm -hmm. and then you, you sort of regroup and you continue to build on that, as opposed to this thing of what would seem to be implied in part of the discussion, which was basically just throw away the whole thing mm -hmm. and, you know, adopt this Western liberal model. So, um, yeah, yeah. I also wanted to add one brief point to what Jeremiah was saying. I think this this is one of also one of the comments that came up in the discussion, which is you know this sort of uh, I think it's sort of an attack on so the question of an intercivilization dialogue between India and China. Like one of the criticisms was that you know why are we talking about the West? And I think this is a question we come across repeatedly, even in the conversations in the in in the Azadi reading group. Mm -hmm. That you know, this is a this is a position that is often taken by people that you know, in order to understand the rest of the world, we do not need to look at the West and how the West sees the world. While you know, on the surface, we I mean, yes, I I think the idea is that we need to actually talk about the West because the uh, understanding of the West and, and how the West views the world. This is not simply something that we are um, that we are finding out today. This has a historical memory in order to understand how we view our relations with our neighbor. I think it's important to talk about the West because uh, how the West has um, allowed relations between neighbors all over the world to develop. I think this is important to clarify at this point because even a lack of knowledge um, you know, prevents us from checking our own assumptions. And I don't think it's, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's quite possible to be in India at this point and think about China solely, um, you know, uh, um, in terms of India-China relations, but, but without any analysis of the, of the West. And I think this is critical at this point to, you know, to go back and reevaluate that, yeah, we do need to understand the West in order to understand our assumptions. Yeah. Yeah. I also might say uh, uh, to, to what I was saying. I mean, essentially, as I said, the the goal of this event was to try to have a dialogue away from. I mean, when I say Western lens, I mean the Western imperialist ideological, you know, hegemony to have a dialogue away from that. But as you see, as you saw in the dialogue, the reality is that um, uh, you know, the Western imperialist. Uh, ideological influence is very strong, uh, especially in in uh, India, South the South Asian region. I mean, obviously, there's a historical reasons for that. I mean, that region is coming out of three or four decades of counter revolution, confusion, ideological crisis, which is quite clear when you hear. And, and the people, by the way, the people we had are the best. The best in terms of we you don't you don't want to hear the rest. That was the best. <laughs> just just to give you a context. Um, so yeah, and uh, uh, what Shambarso was saying is very important. The fact that people there, especially the, as most of all the intelligentsia, which the large, large, the majority of the intelligentsia is through the influential intelligentsia is English speaking also. So the 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 Im impact of the Western ideological assault and information warfare, and the universities on them is intense, very intense. And uh, as a result, you can see how they, why there's so much suspicion of uh, China, particularly. And I was very, personally, I was very disappointed with some people, especially as was mentioned, uh, Mr. 
uh, Kukarni, who previously I had previously I had been impressed by him. Mm -hmm. So it was it was uh, very disappointing for me where the position he's fallen to now since the last time we talked to him. And uh, personally, my personal interpretation is that it's uh, he's chosen a, a certain political side domestically in India, which now is irreconcilable with the position that he previously held. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was making a I think a quite dogmatic argument about electoral democracy and uh, you know I, that's the problem I mean they want to set it up the 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 um, imperialist lens to set it up that for someone from a neighboring country of China to even have a dialogue with China it has to be something confrontational you know like mm -hmm. he was acting as if the dialogue was saying India has to give up its political system and adopt China <laughs> nobody was saying that we were saying let's have a discussion between the two and uh, you know, it was it was uh, it was it was very disappointing as I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, but yeah, on the other hand, uh, I think that Zhang Waiwai and the entire Chinese, it wasn't just him, by the way. It was my understanding from talking to Nantan Raju is that it was uh, uh, the Fudan University apparatus, which is one of the most prestigious universities in China, was broadcasting this event and was promoting it and was very excited. I mean, they were very, they treated it as something very significant, even though it was organized by young people. That is so cool. Yeah, I mean, which is, which is, which is a huge vote of confidence, yeah. you know, and I mean, I think, I think it's the, obviously it's the beginning of this uh, difficult, but very important task which has been taken on, which is to confront the uh, imperialist uh, information apparatus in South Asia. And uh, yeah, to Jer also the point Jeremiah made is a very important one that while we're confronting the Western imperialist um, forces and intervention, I think there is a major role for institutions like Free Squaws, a progressive revolutionary uh, interest civilization force uh, physically based in the West, but which can give a lot of uh, guidance and play a huge role in this uh, multipolar world. And that's why I think, you know, Doc's intervention was very important uh, in explaining because that's the thing. Uh, yeah, again, Kulkarni criticized us for talking about uh, the West so much, but of course you can't take away imperialism from this discussion. And it's very important for people uh, all around the world, whether in Britain, whether in India or China, to know what's happening in the United States, the crisis within the United States, the, the, the fact the masses are rejecting the, the elite, the anti-war feeling, um, all of this stuff is, is uh, at play. I mean, it also, it, the thing is that um in all these discussions also you can't discount the american people that's another important point yeah. and i mean even though obviously our comrades are not based in india but they learned so much with from the american people from an institution like the preschool it helped them as they themselves to reconnect with their own um struggle which is which is very important i mean regions of the world like south asia which have gone through so much uh, tragedy and so on need this uh, reinvigoration this clarity which comes from the American people from the black radical tradition. Uh, it's it's very, very important. So so yeah, I, I think it was a strong beginning despite all the contradictions. I just wanted to add about Martin Jocks. Um, I just thought he was pretty, um, I don't know. I don't really want to be all out now and say that he was bad, but he, um, there was And I think, that as opposed to Zhang Weiwei, there's a discussion that we're kind of happening about like optimism and pessimism thing. And I obviously can see from Jock's ideological standpoint that he 
doesn't have that sense of future that Zhang had. Mm -hmm. Zhang spoke with confidence. Zhang, he, like, I learned a lot about the Chinese state, mm -hmm. the history mm -hmm. and the civilization in which they hold, mm -hmm. how they develop um, their um, civilizational state mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. I hadn't really ever knew that I would think about before. Um, sorry, even to say, oh, okay. No, but I just wanted to throw that in the discussion. You can. Well, well, one thing that made me really happy was um, I think when Jahan asked the question about imperialism and Zhang Weiwei was like, yeah, we've all read Lenin. So we all have to read Lenin. But also when specifically he said, you know, if the US does want to, you know, commit to getting involved militarily in East Asia, we've already beaten them twice. Oh. <laughs> and yeah, he's yeah, referencing yeah, the, the Korean true. War and yeah. the Vietnam War. Yeah, yeah. But even this notion of, you know, like it, it just made me really happy particularly because, you know, we had the event about Korea, Vietnam, yeah. and even this notion of the Korean War as, um, you know, it ended in a stalemate, but in the broad scheme of things, it was the defeat of Western imperialism yeah. because they were able to stop the advance of the United States further into East Asia where it wanted to have a foothold. So I don't know, that just made me really happy. No, yeah. and another thing that made me happy, which I don't even know if other people heard, but when Zhang was talking about like the meritocracy and how it works, which is like so cool, because I'm like, we should do something like that because yeah. we work hard here too. But um, <laughs> well, no, instead you get AOC who be voted without having a vote, or you just get paid into a position by ruling class elite and intelligentsia and all that. But he was saying how much like how that functions, and also think it comes so much of what you're alluding to or said about you know they set um, points that they wanted to achieve alleviation of poverty they did that and things like that and so they're not about talk and then Zhang Weiwei was like Obama was about talk like he was all talk I don't know if y'all heard that did y'all hear that and I was like well damn but then I was thinking about it because it's really maybe he was you know with Doc being here and in the meeting yeah. Yeah. so that was the most interesting thing was like I feel like you like because we were talking about the artist before, but you can tell how advanced a society is, like the state of a society, mm -hmm. by not just the artists they produce, but also the intellectuals yeah, they produce. Absolutely. And absolutely. you can tell, and the interesting thing was that you could observe that Zhang Weiwei was talking in a universality. Like he was ready to engage on a universal philosophic level. Yeah. Like he was not there to just talk about China. He was describing China to explain governance. Yeah. Like to be able to give liberatory yeah. tools yeah. to the American people or even the Indian people to ask, what is the social contract between the people in your state? Like whether it's India or US in particular, which is why he was bringing up January 6th. He was saying, you know, January 6th, is was basically a coup and he also said he even mentioned he was like we believe in the mandate of heaven which says the Chinese yeah, believe, right. people believe in the mandate of heaven which is to say that the people have a god the masses people have a god-given right to overthrow a government that does not work for them and he even said in like what your time with obama like i think he knew that he was also talking to americans because he was even mentioning america's a very young country like america only was only officially achieved legitimacy of the state in 1965 when black people were given the legal right yeah. to vote yeah he did. like he was it'd be interesting to actually hear him 
give a very specific seminar on American history because in some ways like they because they actually still have a philosophy that's based in Hegel, Marx, Lenin, you know, universal, Even like more than that. Yes, mo you know, so much more Chinese philosophy. Like mm -hmm. they would actually be able to give a much more comprehensive, objective, yeah. and American yes. understanding of American history than an American intellectual. Right, right. Which is which is interesting right. to me. Like he understood, like he very you could tell he very much understood was like just because of his develop ideological development, him as intellectual, that he could probably give a sense of like, start inquiring, like, why is it that the American democracy is in a crisis of legitimacy? <laughs> like, why is it that American democracy, the model may not work for the people anymore? Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of economic system, the economic crisis, social, political, cultural, you know? And I think that's in some ways what free school's role is. Like, that's why we're so interested in philosophy mm -hmm. because we're trying to even understand how do you even think about these things? There's a crisis of knowledge. And I feel like that's why I was very moved by hearing Zhang Weiwei talk because he was able to ask the right questions of governance, like the right universal questions that concern people, their relationship to the state. And it helped me like so much understand how do you begin asking the right questions then in America, like for the American people. I think that was really cool to see. Like he even brought up Lincoln. And it was great. Really, yeah, it was interesting yeah, was because great. I didn't like when the Indian Sabindra Kokari, when he asked like, well, don't you think China is something to learn from India? It's like no one's saying yeah. India is bad. Like no one's saying because actually he was framing it. He, that's the whole yeah, frame. Was actually, wrong, America, man. like we're also saying America should learn something from China. Yeah. yeah. And Zhang Weiwei even said, you know, China, we called ourselves a republic off the US because we looked to the we were inspired by Lincoln Republic. Yeah. The Republican like that's idea so for that's the like people so by the deep. like by the people for the people okay. of the people. Yeah. And he said, but we advanced it with People's Republic. Now, what will America do in response with the dialect? Like, will America be able to now take from the People's Republic and make it work for America? And so that was also very, it was like a very, and I actually think, so I think the dialogue was very successful. I think the only person who's ready to have a real dialogue would be Zhang Weiwei and also free schoolers, because we were operating on that level of, like the universal, like what is the truth? What is like, right, what right, substance right. the people? Yeah. And just to say, because I'm just thinking about it from this discussion now, I think that the struggle to world peace is really like, that's the thing that yeah. will develop humanity. Right. Yeah. Like, because- well, There's no question, yeah, I'm sorry. There's no, no definitely. It's an exciting thing because it just seems mm -hmm. even from what you're saying, from the past 200 years, humanity was able to develop with these ideas mm -hmm. about democracy and whatnot, Lincoln mm -hmm. and Frederick Douglass yeah, and King. Right, 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 and right. without that, then there is no development of the human being, yeah. which is the purpose mm -hmm. in, which we need, in which we need to have peace. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and coexistence. Yeah. That's, yeah, I was just thinking that. It was so important, I think, that this was done by young people. I, I thought that Zhang Weiwei did not show any defensiveness. No, yeah. I no, think, sadly, the Indian side, yeah. it was too much defensiveness. Yeah, they are really sensitive. You know, and, but it does reflect the, um, the character of the state in the two countries. Uh, the in, the, the um, Chinese state is very advanced. I mean, it's it's something that I did not fully appreciate until I saw Zhang Weiwei 
and for a man to speak with such confidence and clarity yeah, yeah, yeah. reflects the state yeah. and the intellectuals yes, yes, of the country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I was, I think I was saying maybe to so Michelle and, and Alice, we were rapping uh, last night, uh, I think maybe also Emily, but um, <laughs> you know, um, just like Zhang Weiwei was talking about how China had eradicated poverty. I'm of the opinion that back in the 1970s, under the governments of, um, of Indira, but building on the previous ones, Nehru and so on, India was on the cusp of eradicating poverty. It could have made a tremendous uh, advance, even before China. India, economically, and I think in terms of state organization, was more advanced in the 70s and 80s than was China. But the assassination of Indira and the unraveling of the state. And that's why I always pick up, and whenever I talk to Nandita and Raju, I talk, because they would, you know, we would talk about different problems that they face in getting people to even respond to their emails. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's just, whereas Zhang Weiwei, I mean, respond, I mean, it was, everything was enthusiastic. Yeah. It was very professional. Like, yeah. That's what I'm saying. It wasn't just him, it was the whole institution. Like they were, they were there 30 minutes early, dressed up, <laughs> testing sound, broadcasting. Right. Right. You know, and they were they were just so happy that somebody yeah. in India who's so serious, even yeah. though they're young, who's serious, intellectual really, serious, yeah. is trying to put this thing together. So I mean, that's why it was a huge. I don't think anything has happened like that in years. I don't there. think so. Many I don't years. think so. And and you know, um, I yeah, but I was struck by how the Indians felt they were confronting a, a hostile power. <laughs> and there was no, uh, there was, I think Zhang Weiwei was very generous. His spirit was generous. I didn't feel the same on the uh, Indian side. And that's a problem. Now, I might disagree a little bit, Joe. This might, they might not be the best. What? Oh, really? Yeah, anybody who's better. Yeah, well, no. Yeah, they're, the <laughs> they're the best, of course. But I think there might be among professional diplomats and so on, like the foreign minister. Maybe. 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 And I think they're he being. Gives, you know, he's good one day and the next day. Well, true. True <laughs> that. I feel you. But the Indian state has been so weakened over the last 40 years. And um, I think I think the Indian side reflected the crisis of the Indian state. Very defensive, hedging, uh, not prepared to enter into the type of dialogue yeah. that was necessary. Mm -hmm. And then kind of, um, you know, out the side of their eyes, suggesting, well, who were the, who were Nandatha and Raju? Yeah, like, come on. Yeah, come on. yeah. You know, this kind of suspiciousness. Yeah. And, but it, there was this, and 
you know, the other thing, I just say this, you know, Russia or the Soviet Union and China, you're talking about a bitter relationship, bitter, bitter, bitter. And for it, for almost the same amount of time as the India-China conflict. And I don't want to at all, and I don't minimize that war of 1962. I do not minimize it and other things in Chinese foreign policy. But at some point, well, how do you so easily join the Quad, India? You know, why is that such a comfort zone? I, I felt, but I think, and this is the question that I had, you know, uh, Zhang Weiwei talked about the ancient character of the Chinese state. This is huge. And, and how up to the present it has evolved and yada, yada, yada. Well, I mean, if the Indian side wanted, and I'm not just putting them down because I agree with a lot they said, but if they wanted an inter-civilizational dialogue, why didn't they talk about the Indian civilization state? True. Yeah. But they didn't. Yeah, it has not much work has gone into No, 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 no. But but I would say, and my last point is this: the Chinese state is probably the most advanced state on the planet for all kinds of reasons. I think that the second most advanced might be Russia. Yeah, seeing evidence for that, definitely. Yes, yes, and that, and that's because they do not dogmatically attempt to fit their social political realities to some kind of Western model of right, elections. Right, right. They don't even care. The Russians <laughs> don't Western care. Theory also, that, Western political theory. Western political theory. That's, right. yeah. that's the problem. As you saw in the, the, all the Indian intellectuals in that talk, we're talking very much basing things off of Western political Yes. Theory. They're talking about election. But they don't believe it. I don't think they believe it. It's just they took that stance to counter China. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's just a, there's, I think there's overall a weakness in developing yeah. ideas away from right. the... It's, the, and the India point. wasn't always like that. I mean, during it, they were not. This, uh, this compromised intelligentsia, which, you know, you all always talk about, is, I think, the assassination of Indira and then Rajiv and then the undoing of the Congress Party, where the Congress Party now wants to look more like the Democratic yeah. Party. Of the United yeah. Yeah. yeah, is that that's yeah. accurate, isn't it? Yeah. So mm -hmm. but I wanted to add um yeah I think those are that's definitely an important point the way uh, as I was saying I was trying to say also that the impact of the past few decades. But um mm -hmm. the other interesting thing is that uh uh, I think with uh, China, this discussion of the civilizational state, mm -hmm. um, it's interesting actually how uh, Zhang Wai Wai compared his analysis compares to Martin Jacques on this question. Oh, thank you. Because uh, I was looking a little bit into it that uh, so Martin Jacques, well, Zhang Wai Wai in his writing talks about civilizational state versus civilization state, I think. Um, so if i uh, if i'm if i'm keeping it correct the distinction between the two because it sounds very similar but i think he's saying that civilizational civilization no state which is i think what he's saying china is is a is a modern nation state synthesized with 
the ancient civilization. Oh, I see. And a civilization yeah. state is where though you have those tensions between the two. And so I think uh, what the civilization knows state implies also the, the aspect of struggle, the fact that, yes, of course, China has a, probably the oldest existing state, but it's mm -hmm. not just the ancient mm -hmm. Chinese state today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not the feudal aristocratic mm -hmm. or Manchu dynasty state. Mm -hmm. This is a state that has synthesized yeah. Chinese thought through this struggle, right? Through the Chinese revolution and through the uh, leadership mm -hmm. of the Communist Party, mm -hmm. even you know, through connecting with ideas Can I ask from you other a question, parties. Jeff. Yeah. Was he saying that perhaps the civilizational state is the model that comes after the nation state? Is that's it a, a good question? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think you could make that argument. But I, I just think in this, uh, me per, in, personally, in this whole discussion, I think the it, the aspect of um, basically the uh, you know the people's struggle is important. That the you know the Chinese state is is uh, the modern Chinese People's Republic is constructed by the struggle of the people. Mm -hmm. It's not merely the Manchu you know <laughs> aristocratic or feudal state, which I think a lot of discussions nowadays. People, some some people in Asia are falling into this more cultural national thing right. of just you know we're right. going to bring back the whatever mm -hmm. ancient state mm -hmm. is, which mm -hmm. is. But you need this aspect of the you know the struggle of the people. I mean that's the Marxism mm -hmm. in China, you know Marxism, mm -hmm. Leninism, mm -hmm. the Republic, all of that mm -hmm. synthesized with the Chinese philosophy and Confucian thought and so on. So. I mean, there's definitely a lot there. I, mean, I think it would be a rich discussion to have again, America, uh, US China dialogue with yeah. someone. It would yeah. be a very rich yeah. thing yeah. to do in the future. Uh, good. We have some comments, but I also wanted to, to bring up that I think Zhang Wei, he mentioned that he had had a debate with Francis Fukuyama. Yeah. yeah. And so it really is, it's like he's gone up against the quote unquote best of the, yeah, the best yeah, of the West. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, he, he did a PhD or something. Right, in, the, in Europe, no? Yeah. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. like, I think in yeah, it's more Europe. Right, he was teaching in Geneva. I, I mean, I don't want to speak too long, but I feel like the more I learned about him after the debate, the more I was like, I feel like you got a really cool person to you know, engage his dialogue with not just America but also the West. And then his talk shows on in Chinese media every every few weeks. There's another talk show. He's always talking. Do you is is his debate with Francis Fukuyama on YouTube? It's, it's on YouTube. It's, There's also a transcript, transcript. of it. Oh, oh. Sure. I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, well, I wanted to. There's one paragraph from from the debate that I wanted to read because it also applies to, like this whole like the civilization thing, but then democracy because he right. says says so Zhang Weiwei says I would also like to talk about public participation and the decision making process. And actually, I do hope that Professor Fukuyama will have the opportunity to do more field research in China. He's so quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and he says he asks. What is the Chinese way of, of democratic decision-making? Let me share one example. In China, we make a national development plan every five years. This is the crystallization of tens of thousands of rounds of discussions and consultations at all levels of the Chinese state and society. In my opinion, this is a real democratic decision-making process and it ensures quality decision-making. The gap between the West and China in this regard um, is to be frank, huge. To my mind, China is perhaps at the graduate level and the West perhaps at the undergraduate oh. or even high school level. Oh. The analysis is. That's 
And then you basically designed the rest of white supremacists and are ready to just basically let them die and have no jobs, let them die, be hungry, all that stuff. And so that was interesting, this thing of like, we, the, our main problem is that people don't trust the government. And I was like, well, when Trump was the president, you told people to not trust the government. So why is that now in 2022, you want them to trust the government? Like people are getting mixed messages. Right. Well, I could say to that person, um, a locker, that um, I'm just one. I mean, Glenn Greenwald would say the same thing, Tulsi Gabbard. Right. Uh, there are a whole slew of people. Part of the problem with what I call the nominal left, mm -hmm. those who, you know, like that uh, Emily is talking about, her international labor leadership, SEIU, would call themselves the left, mm -hmm. although they're bound in all kinds of ways to the Democratic Party, which is the principal political mechanism of the ruling class. You know, I think there are all kinds of reasons to question the 2020 election. And part of the problem with the inverted commas left is that they have not, because they hold in contempt a good part of the American working class. And once that contempt sets in, you cannot be independent. You cannot stand with the working people. That's all I would say. Yeah. Oh, I, um, I wanted to expand on the point that Emily was making that people don't trust their government because um, uh, the question was, or the commentators said that the left is not questioning the election results. But in 2000, the election was highly contested. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. In 2004, I think the election was contested again. Um, between Kerry and Bush. Mm -hmm. um, in 2008 and in 2000, oh, what was the next one? Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> there was all these questions. Uh, you might remember that there was a huge debate about around voting machines and if voting machines could be hacked and the supply chain of voting machines mm -hmm. and investigating the supply chain of the uh, company Diebold or Diebold mm -hmm. and um, the Macy's. So it has been, it, it hasn't been, it's like it's been erased from the consciousness of people that elections have been contested for the past 20 years. Because for 20 straight years, we've had highly uh, contentious, uh, contested uh, elections. Um, and then there's, uh, I really like the work of Mark Crispin Miller, who uh, he's been critical of the elections for the past 20 years, mm -hmm. especially the George Bush election. And then, um, I don't know, I haven't looked too much into these elections, the most recent ones, but it was just curious that um, the, the voting procedure to count, to count the votes at the ballot box was not followed because there, they weren't observe, observed in the state of Pennsylvania. You're supposed to be able to uh, see those uh, counted and that was done in secret. So um, there should at least be a decent morally examination or legal examination. But it was like the Republican party all their uh, lawyers became clowns. It was, mm -hmm. a, it was a clown show. Mm -hmm. Giuliani was outside <laughs> the four seasons. These are supposed to be more professional of the two parties. It's supposed to be more uh, hegemonic and um, unified of the two parties. And um, 
Yeah, so elections have been contested, but it's yeah. been wiped from the uh, Oh, secondly, I just wanted to say I grew up in a very um, liberal area, and I can, uh, when when uh, in 2014 or during Obama's term, there were the Benghazi committee hearings where. Um, uh, yeah, we always say, oh, yeah, because we forgot. It's been erased from our memory. Um, but the Benghazi, uh, you know, it was widely accepted that they were a joke, they were a fraud, that they were just a circus to distract from the issues. Uh, so I can, I can see that someone who didn't grow up in a liberal area like me or in a liberal bubble um, might see that these January 6th committee uh, hearings are a fraud. They're not they're not bipartisan. They're heavily skewed towards the Democrats, and it's a whole lot of nothing. Um, but because I'm in this liberal bubble, everyone seems to be freaking out constantly. I was going to say, even if we grant that the election wasn't rigged, that, that 88 million people voted for Joe Biden. We honestly going to sit here and say that that's who they wanted to be president? Like that, that the choice between Donald Trump and this person was the person they wanted to have. I mean, this poll that we brought up about how most Americans don't want to go to war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So we have a democracy, and most of the people in our population don't want to go to war, and we're going to war. Anyway, right. You know, this this relationship with the rock democracy has been fraught for a long time, and you know, we brought up this idea that even you know, black, the black population not being able to vote until after 1968, 65. Uh, 65, excuse me. So, I mean, like, you know, um, this is this is a moment where we can look in the mirror and really try to analyze what we've been fighting about with this term democracy, or we can continue to point the finger, oh, it's the Trumpers, oh, it's, you know. Right. Uh, and that becomes the political practice of the left, yeah. you know, solely, exclusively all of the big questions of war and peace, inflation and all of that, they don't really get excited about. But we got to save our democracy from Bush. I mean, from Trump, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pro -democracy yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. Well, by the way, did, you, did, did you see the, uh, some, apparently some Russian uh, pranksters? I don't know how they did this, but they somehow got George Bush, W. Bush on the phone oh, yeah. on a Zoom call or some yeah. kind of video call. Recently. Recently, pretending the prankster was pretending to be Zelensky. I saw it on Consortium News had an article basically this prankster pretending to be Zelensky got George W. Bush to admit that. Um, his father's administration had promised that NATO wouldn't expand. And he's like, oh, times have changed. You know, we got to do what's right for the U.S. This is president. And like, he, he was basically telling him, like, yeah, just keep killing Russians. That's what's happening right now. It was bizarre. But, uh, I don't know how they did it. I'm liking this counter-propaganda. <laughs> but, um, no, but anyway, Emil said the key ideological points. I would just add to that. I, I just think that yeah, this is very much an issue that needs to be challenged uh, on the left. We need to we need to have the right to question the elections. We need to have a right to question the ruling class narrative, the January 6th committee, which I think you talked about it already today. But I mean, yeah, it was a total joke made for TV. And uh, it was supposed to be bipartisan, but the only lot of Republicans who are anti-Trump, to be honest, like Liz Cheney and whatever. Yeah, and Trump pro war, yeah, very important. Yeah, very important. Neocons, basically. Mm -hmm. And 
Oh yeah, I mean, just one thing which really, just one of the many election irregularities that really shocked me was um, that Pennsylvania, the courts in Pennsylvania ruled that you can count undated mail-in ballots and anyone who's filled out a mailing ballot, it said, literally it says on it, this will not be considered complete unless it has a date on it, which I mean, just common sense, because then you're just there at the polling, but you can write up a ballot and say, we received it before the election. So anyway, and, and there's that documentary to whatever it was called, 2000 Mules, which is being blocked as far as I know from being played anywhere near Philadelphia. <laughs> None of us are going to be able to see it. It's about, it's made by this guy Dinesh who's a conservative filmmaker. Oh, no, and it's about the election irregularities. And apparently a large part of the movie is about Pennsylvania, but it's hard to see it. It's not playing in Philly. Or if you drive like two hours to find it being played anywhere. 2000 Mules, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, to uh, talk about a, uh, I guess, crisis of legitimacy and a lack of transparency and questioning of democracy as a whole. Uh, I think of uh, Mexico in a parallel circumstance in a, in a previous epoch where, like, for example, I think it was like, I forget which year it was, but uh, AMLO lost on like a very uh, small margin. It happened like two or three times. Yeah, yeah, really small margins. And like overall, there was like a huge lack of belief in government for a significant period of time. Even when he won, there was still like a supreme level of skepticism. And that was an opportunity to have a more creative expression of democracy for uh, that time. Uh, and so like what, what, he, what he does now is uh, it's called Las Mañaneras. So like every morning he'll go in front of the country and for I think it's, it can last even like two to four hours, it's pretty long. Uh, give, give an overview of like what the government is doing in the country, uh, what it intends to do. And then there's time for uh, journalists to ask questions. So he kind of like sets himself up with some accountability. He could get roasted at any given day if he's not uh, not fulfilling his terms. Mm -hmm. And so like in, in this in this time period, it's, it's a really, I think, uh, uh, I, I would say advancing uh, uh, the people themselves on how to like think and understand their government to assess what someone says. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and what your government does, and in, re in response to all all, all this uh, lack of confidence in America, I have seen no <laughs> great push uh, mm -hmm. in that aspect. The only thing I can th I, 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 the only thing I can think of, I hope you guys have some examples of something in the previous would be who was it that did fireside chats? FDR. Oh, FDR oh, yeah. in a period of ex a lack of extreme radio mm -hmm, a lack of extreme confidence in America, and I mean that, instead of these uh, show press. Uh, Press secretary hearings or whatever, or these uh, sham court hearings, uh, some, some some creative expression uh, like that, I feel would uh, win people over uh, and would yeah train people on how to think uh, as as opposed to just all you know you keep your mind completely closed to anything that somebody says. If somebody tells you something, government, let me think the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Trump started Truth Social involved oh. social media. It's okay. I mean, not a far side well, chat. Um, you want y'all want to do because I ha I have a wedding to go to. Oh, oh yeah. Time. What time? What time do you have to go? Do you mind if I leave if we leave at a, a quarter to two? Yeah. Yeah. Friday still get married. Well. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> oh, okay. Freedom. Okay. Well, one, one comment from Yondata about the dialogue. She says, it's very valuable for us to hear all your thoughts on the dialogue. Raju and I are convinced that there needs to be more work to define how India is a civilizational state 
but also how class struggle in a post-revolutionary society can be, can be furthered through the state. Much of the left in India positions itself against the state, unlike the Congress of Indira Gandhi, who leveraged the state for the poor. And this is what I feel Zhang Weiwei was saying about today's China. Mm -hmm. um, and then Blaze also shared this, uh, this survey recently about perceptions of democracy and how China was one of five countries um, to say that they perceived that they were the most that they were democratic, the most democratic. Mm -hmm. um, that is the Chinese population mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in terms of perception mm -hmm. of democracy. But people mm -hmm. can see more. Um, and then it's okay if I read the response from from Cornelius about the election stuff. Mm -hmm. He said, "Thanks for addressing my point. Black people, like in most elections, were especially pivotal in the Biden win." And I understand that I understand the case that there's no difference between Trump and Biden. Okay, some on the quote left who ordinarily don't advocate voting took the position that 2020 was too important to see Trump win. I believe Trump did not win due to his handling of COVID. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll go. We'll be talking about this for some time. But uh, yeah, so let's let's uh, kind of get, if you don't mind, back in into. Um, the science of logic, just a couple of points, and then uh, a couple of things from uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, essay, Marxism, Existentialism. Okay, so uh, I'm kind of using a book that's not the same as the one up there, but um, I want to uh, address uh, the question that Serafina asked in the beginning about um, the ascendancy to the concrete, what that means. Is, is that, uh, I, you know, um, Emily, uh, there's a paragraph that begins, in my translation, it begins, at first, therefore. <clears throat> and it's, uh, it's right, maybe a page before the subsection called general division of logic. See general division of logic. And then the paragraph at first therefore logic. It's gonna be translated differently in, in the text up there. Uh, Maybe I need to go. Uh, no, the, the paragraph that begins, so logic must indeed at first be learned. Okay, we could start Page there. 37. Page 37. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, 57 in your book. Yeah. And the PDF. Um, no, no, let's not start there. Um, go down one more page. You mean closer to okay, the other right. uh, no, 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 no. way. Uh, okay, so just so logic must indeed at first be learned. We could start there. Um, okay, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah, right here. I've heard, uh -huh. yeah. So, uh, Kathy, you want to want to start reading that? 
you don't mind, mm -hmm. try to look over your shoulder. Sure, sure, sure. Mm -hmm. So logic. Oh, does everybody see where we're at? Okay, so logic must indeed at first be learned as something which one may well understand and penetrate into, but in which at the beginning, one misses the scope, depth, and broader significance. Only after a more profound acquaintance with the other sciences does logic rise or subjective spirit from a merely abstract universal to a universal that encompasses within itself the riches of the particular in the same way a moral maxim does not possess in the mouth of a youngster who otherwise understands it quite well, the meaning and scope that it has in the spirit of a man with a lifetime of experience yeah. to whom therefore the weight mm -hmm. of its content is expressed in full force. Go ahead, Maxine. Thus, logic receives full appreciation of its value only when it comes as the result of the experience of the sciences. Mm -hmm. Then it displays itself to spirit as the universal truth, not as a particular cognition alongside another material and other realities, but as the essence of a, a but as the essence rather of this further content. Okay. Yeah, let me just kind of explain. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to get back to Hegel after being away for so long, which I blame on Michelle Du. <laughs> but uh, I want to explain this because it gets to something that uh, Serafina was asking. First of all, uh, if you could just, what Hegel is saying, the notion with a capital N, a general or universal truth is the result of particular truths from multiple sciences. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That logic as a method of knowing the world is abstract, purely abstract, until it is connected to other sciences. Mm -hmm. For example, let us take sociology as a science. We could have an abstract notion with a capital N of what society is. But until we have studied uh, society from the standpoint of, of uh, family, of class, let us say, of other social facts, we cannot know whether or not we have said in the abstract about society is true, okay? Now, does that make sense to everybody? That's, that's kind of what he's saying, that going back to his claim that uh, uh, logic is the science of science or philosophy is the science of science. He is saying here and in general that philosophy, like the study of grammar, is the study of the most abstract forms of thinking, okay? And that the abstract must be combined with the concrete. 
Okay, so that abstract thinking is important, is a critical even, but it must be combined with concrete studies. Okay. Uh, now, but the other side that he's saying is that without the abstract, the concrete studies don't have coherence. Um, now, remember a few weeks ago, some maybe I don't know how long ago, we talked about the concept, this idea concept of the abstract universal. That Hegel places a lot of weight on a on the uh, abstract universal. In other words, the notion. I, I just want to explain this a little bit more because I, I, you know, the fact that I can't get it right means that I'm not understanding it. I think. Let's start with the issue or the concept abstract universal universal as in general applying across uh, fields of study okay the abstract universal is perhaps what let's say Karl Marx called a law of social development that would be an abstract universal okay the law of capitalist development, okay? abstract universal, or the laws of uh, capitalist development. The problem is, and this is the question that Serafina asks, well, the notion or the general law or the universal abstract is insufficient right, mm -hmm. to understand the actuality of capitalism. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So rather than, uh, how you say, augment this abstract universal with other abstractions, right, right. what Marx proposed is that there be an ascendancy to the concrete. Now, there is a certain irony in the way Marx put it, because he is trying to make a strong point that it is not the abstract where the truth is, right. but it is in the concrete and the concrete's relationship to abstract concepts. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, now, I am of the opinion that Hegel remains pretty much at the level of abstract universals. Marx, and we could say Du Bois, but certainly Marx and his collaborators, especially Frederick Engels, mm -hmm. were interested in the concrete universal, mm -hmm. the actuality of things. Mm -hmm. You get, if you take a course in Marxism at universities that might teach that, teach that today, it is almost using Hegel's abstract universal to talk about Karl Marx. Mm. So it is a 
a, a static, fixed in a period in history capitalism, you know, which is a, a dogmatic rendering. It is not scientific. Marx's claim, which is an advance on Hegel, is that to remain at the level of the abstract universal is to be at the level of, um, uh, of abstraction. You're not dealing with the concrete realities. Now, for a lot of thinkers like Kant and Hegel, that was sufficient. Marx represents an advance of scientific explanation, scientific knowledge, but it is an advance that first has to uh, conquer or master the question of Hegel and Kant to a certain extent, uh, resigning themselves to abstraction. Mm -hmm. That philosophy is the study of abstract Right, right. Categories. But that political economy, while needing Hegel's logic, political economy must study the concrete mm. situation that we call capitalism. And that's why when Marx talks about, you might want to uh, uh, write this concept down, historically constituted phenomenon. The historically constituted for Marx is not the idea or the abstraction, it is the concrete. Mm -hmm. Just like today, you know, I was talking about uh, China as a historically constituted nation, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which Zhang Weiwei even uh, augmented by talking about the Chinese state right, as right. a ancient historically constituted Mm -hmm. uh, institution, you know what I'm saying? The historical constitution of phenomenon. Mm -hmm. okay. But historically constituted over concrete time in concrete reality, actual human beings. Yeah. And thus you get you know, you can easily draw from that the class conflict. Right. And you can almost see it working its way out in Karl Marx and, his, and Frederick Engels and those, you know, you take the Communist Manifesto, 1848, up working class uprisings all over Europe. So the question is, what is, is, is science, is social science, is political economy, only to be concerned with the abstract notion of capitalism, or must it take the abstract notion and see it in relationship to the concrete realities? Right. Yeah. And that's the great philosophical achievement uh, coming out of Hegel to a certain extent out of Kant. Uh, and it is for us, you know, you hear people talking about uh, uncertainty all the time. The situation is uncertain. Well, I don't agree. I don't disagree. It is an uncertain moment, but it's not absolutely uncertain. Yeah, right. mm -hmm. You know, and they use uncertainty to suggest 
unknowability. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. You know, yeah. I mean, it is both, it's like uh, Du Bois, law and chance, law and uncertainty, law and unpredictability, the two. So, yes, uh, there are clearly uncertainties in the moment on all levels, uncertain about what the people will do, how the people will act, what the ruling class will do, all of that. But then there's a certain pattern, laws meaning regularities of patterns oh, okay. that kind of define whatever phenomena you're talking about. We call it capitalism for a certain reason, not just because we like the word, oh. but we're talking about patterns, laws, regularities, things that repeat themselves, such as that labor is exploited right. on the job. And when you can't get a job, you know, uh, we're talking about things that we see, such as gentrification, deindustrialization. These are patterns of development or of motion of the capitalist system. Right. I mean, anybody that, I mean, we're shocked, we're abhorred by it by what we see around us, the poverty, the misery. But would anybody say, oh, this, this violates what capitalism is because <laughs> the people that founded capitalism or whatever, they didn't, they said it was gonna all be rosy, you know? But we who look at it scientifically, well, we see uncertainty, but then we see the playing out of the laws of motion of capitalist development, you know? And that, that concept, I think that, that, is, that comes into the lexicon of discussion with Marx, laws of motion, you know? And it is dialectical because the assumption is that everything exists in motion. And to know a thing is to know its laws of motion. You know, that's easier said than done, but you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But that does not rule out uncertainty, you know, even chaos. So if a person said, the situation is uncertain, I've thrown up my hands, uh, I'm retreating, you know, into my library <laughs> to read, you know, that person wanted to retreat into their library already anyway. <laughs> anyway. And they may have already retreated into the library before the uncertainty. So uncertainty does not mean unknowability. We want to understand uncertainty in relationship to the laws of motion of phenomena. That's all I wanted to say. Um, uh, I, you know, and, and listen, I, I just want to go to a couple of footnotes by Sartre. Um, and if we, the next time, if you look at this last subsection, which is about six, maybe eight pages, the general division of logic, I think this is the summation of the introduction. And I think it will clarify most of what we've been talking about. I think I think we we have a, a basic handle on what dialectics is, you know, 
Engels says that the three laws of dialectics, the law of negation of negation, the law of, contra law of contradiction, and the law, your law of the unity of opposites. No, no, the law of negation of negation, the law of the unity of opposites, and the law of quantitative changes leading to qualitative change. As you know, uh, I've always felt that the, the central law of dialectics is the law of negation of the law of negation of negation. Now, I read um, Todd uh, Yadoherty sent a, uh, an article by a person who's a leader of the current Communist Party of the United States, who said, in effect, one of the worst ideas, he was saying, as communists, we have to shed all the baggage that held us down from relating to the people. One of them was the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Hey, hey, no. And my question is, well, what about the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie? Can we keep that one? But, <laughs> I'll be back from relating to the people or relating to the liberals. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the other one, one of the other ones, was the concept of negation of negation. Both of them were not good for me. Huh? No, you had, yeah, that, that helped, yeah, that right. put the communists in a bad light with the people, right. with a what, democratic mass of people. What separates communism from liberalism? Well, I think, I think they want to drop that word too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's the question. Right. And, but see, doesn't it begin, see, just this, this, let's hold off on the dictatorship of the proletariat, okay. Okay, negation of negation. Engels didn't invent that. That was Hegel. Right. Okay, now, now we know what we're dealing with. It is not Marx only, it is Hegel. It is Hegel. You know, it's back to what we've been talking about so much. Hegel must be demonized and seem to be the path to authoritarianism and against liberal democratic theory. Now, Zhang Weiwei obviously knows his Hegel. You see what I'm saying? Obviously understands dialectics. And as such, anyone that reads Hegel, and we've just done the introduction, it is very clear that dialectics is based upon the, what they call the law of the negation of a negation. What do you mean negation of a negation? The first negation was an affirmation and it was a negation of something else. And now it is being negated. Well, what does that mean? Things are constantly moving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Finally, the problem of thinkers uh, like Friedrich Nietzsche. You know, Hegel is talking about constant development and constant change, but he's not addressing the moral decadence of bourgeois society. Oh, I see what you're saying you know, about my art. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so, so, you know, if philosophy doesn't address in a hyper uber way, me, then it is not worth anything. It can be discarded. So 
just oh man there's so many connections to make you know i just the harlem renaissance when uh, langston hughes writes this article called the black artist in the racial mountain and he is saying that the previous generation by which he meant du bois and those people had thought that sociology and history was the way to black liberation. And uh, Hugh Langston Hughes said, but our generation believes that it is art that is the path to liberation. Uh, because, and so, and then he went on to say, and that the artist must be allowed to freely express himself, herself. And then Du Bois came back with the, with the essay, The Criteria of Negro Art, where he says, that art to be black art, not just art done by a black artist, but black art must uphold an emancipatory vision. If it is not emancipatory, it is not black. This is what we now, you could see with Nietzsche, and to a certain extent, this one called Schopenhauer, you can check him out. You know. But what they were saying is that previous generation looked to history, but we have to discard history. And we have to look to the personal and the psychological. Nietzsche will be lead to a form of existentialism, but not, um, not Sartre, I'll explain that in a minute. But what Nietzsche does open the doorway to is to Sigmund Freud. Right, right, right. And Sigmund Freud becomes foundational to a form of Marxism that emerges after the Russian Revolution in Germany called the Frankfurt School of Social Research. Mm -hmm. That And Marcuse is huge in this. Uh, I believe Adorno, I believe most of them, although people will disagree, were looking for the um, unconscious um, unconscious drives that drove this is, I know this sounds very familiar drives the working class towards reaction right. towards totalitarianism and war and Nazism. So in that sense it all is the fault of the working class. You see what I'm saying? And when you get to the Soviet Union, well, it was the working class that elevated Stalin. So in, inherent to the consciousness and subconsciousness of the working class as a collective is a totalitarian. It's the same thing today. Nietzsche kind of becomes the, um, the exemplar of this kind of anti-historicism, anti-dialectical, anti-really um, anti-radical, anti-revolutionary, because they always say, well, revolution ain't possible because the working class subconsciously is bound 
to its own backwardness. If you don't mind, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, John. Uh, I mean, you can ignore it because it takes us off track. But since you named a number of thinkers in a relationship mm -hmm. with Frank, well, I was curious how, uh, what's it, uh, Heidegger fits into this thing. Oh, yeah, what's his deal? <laughs> okay, Heidegger. There's, a, there's often a connection drawn to uh, Nietzsche between the two, but. You know, um, Heidegger, like Nietzsche, is anti-historical. Mm. And what Heidegger, rather than uh, to do a Freudian analysis of the German masses, he does a cultural yeah. framing, you know what I'm saying? Where Nietzsche says, of course, he's looking primarily at Germany, that German society uh, is debased, he might say, because of capitalism. It's decadent. It's selfish, morally decadent. That's what he's getting at. And out of this, a few men, and I've certainly met women too, but a few men would arise who would be supermen, morally superior. You know what I'm saying? Who would cast aside all of the decadence of the masses, you see what I'm saying? And that, that applies to art because with surrealism and Dadaism and other movements after World War I, the thing of the Superman, the superior man, the morally uh, uh, and not decadent today, man. Today maybe you would say the woke. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no question, absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it is all Nietzschean. It is all the reactionary side of existentialism. Heidegger is a phenomenologist and an existentialist. They go together. But what he is saying, that it is the culture, he's saying primarily the German peasantry, which goes way, way back to ancient times that, uh, that defines German society. So he was, in a certain sense, you can call him a German cultural nationalist. Uh, no, yeah. But, so, and let's look at Sartre because it's different. It's different. And, um, this is a footnote on page nine. Oh, okay. Oh. Or, I guess Oh, yeah, it's on nine. Yeah. Entirely possible. Or, oh, yeah. No, go ahead. No, you read it. Read it. Read it. Read it. Just, just, yeah. Uh huh. Let's let everybody get it up on nine. Uh, on page nine, the footnote. Well, I don't know if it's on that version. It might not be on the Marxist. Yeah, the online one doesn't have page numbers. No, that was the one I read thinking it was this one, but I don't see it. It's in it's it's part one, the end of part one. It's in. Can I, can I just. Yeah. Let, you, let, let me just show you. Just uh, if you might, you see the. Uh, uh, Emily, you see the paragraph that begins the most ample philosophical totalization. Yes. Okay. The most ample philosophical totalization is Hegelianism. By totalization, 
He's mean, meaning looking at things holistically, not just in part. In this sense, Hegel's philosophy is the opposite of Anglo-Saxon liberalism, which sees the parts as primary and wants to understand things in their atom atomic form, their smallest form, rather than, and then to see the whole as just a collection of the parts, rather than the whole as a as constituted, and I'm going to use this word to give constituted dialectically, mm. constituted in in the unity of opposites. See, the question of how things are constituted is also very important. Mm. You know, whether things are constituted over historical time or not. Right. See, the opposite of a historicist and holistic uh, analysis mm -hmm. is an essentialist. Mm -hmm. We want to know things in their essence and in their static state. The more difficult thing is to understand things in their totalities and in their dialectical state, their movement emotion okay uh, now so Sartre says that Hegel's most saying here knowledge is raised to its most eminent dignity okay um, it is not limited to viewing being from the outside it incorporates being and dissolves it in itself well being the individual whatever exists does not exist separate from everything else. Mind objectifies itself, alienates itself, and recovers itself without ceasing. It realizes itself through its own history. You can look at that again. I don't, you know, it's his language, it's his way. But the thing is so important is that things constitute themselves through history. That is not Nietzsche. Nietzsche is an enemy of history history obscures things and you will find that in philosophy today you scratch the surface of a person extolling a certain form of existentialism one thing you're going to find in them right like that they are anti-history anti-historicism uh and they uh want to talk about, to, you know, the thing of how a thing is constituted, how it comes into being, is they want to talk about it only as um, the product of individual consciousness. Let us say, I constitute myself. <laughs> part of what, uh, yeah, part of what uh, it seems a lot of people find attractive about uh, Nietzsche and the Ubermensch, the yeah, yeah. Uberman or Superman, is the idea that that individual can then kind of uh, escape history, or transcend history. Absolutely, and that's what Absolutely. I think. I think I guess it's very much petty bourgeois, oh my you know, God, right? Like yes. we say, freedom from society. So it's almost trying to get freedom from history, freedom from that. I just you can overcome the select. Well, yeah, whatever freedom you know. yeah, yeah, the freedom, yeah. but there is no freedom too. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we've been talking about the uh, 
the philosophical investigations of uh, Kendrick Lamar. And uh, frankly, just from my vantage point, how infantile they are. And, you know, and to say, oh, go, 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 go ahead. No, I was just thinking as you were talking, I mean, that in terms of art, it seems that all these, uh, you know, pop art and Dada, whatever, it's all an attempt, similar thing, to try to put art to escape history. You know, art that is uh, either, again, ignores history or trying to escape history or reject history or what have you. And I think that, yeah, I'm just connecting that. No, it's just very important for to mock history. Right, 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 right. right, right. To yeah, make this, a mockery of it. Yeah, that makes sense with, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that seemed very childish. It's an infantile um, rebellion. Right. You know right, how when right, you, right, you get right. 13, well, right. Emily was telling me that her parents put, and, and I didn't know Chinese parents would put you <laughs> out. <laughs> you know, she said her parents put her outside and so did, em, you, Michelle. uh, so did Michelle's parents. You know, it's like, you know, you reach a point well, now you're going to tell your parents what to do when you're 12 years old, right, right, and I'm feeding right, you and clothing right, you. So it is this kind of infantile eruption, and that's a rebellion. And that's another thing where people who follow this form of that is the um, uh, uh, the Nietzschean form of existentialism, they equate individual rebellion with revolution, right, 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 right. you know? And you saw it all, I mean, you, you guys have lived it. I mean, this is, you know- That's a dominant all, trend. That's a dumb, and you know, virtue signaling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a revolutionary. Why are you a revolutionary? Because I'm rebelling. Yeah. Is rebellion revolution? Yes. You know, I'm tearing down a statue. You know, I'm defacing the, uh, the Gandhi statue at the, uh, Indian Embassy in Washington, you know, all of this becomes ch childish rebellion is associated with revolution. There's no revolutionary anywhere in this modern history that is talked about, first of all, the revolution that they're conducting and involved in, in any way, but as connected to other revolutions and other uh, processes of struggle all over the world you know hold on one last point and the other thing is that they associate um no uh, i forgot what to go go ahead i was going to say it sort of feels like it speaks from an alienation That's well you, true true but it, but it doesn't really reject the alienation in fact it, it, Furthers it because it's, I can't be attached to any of this history that all these people who are a result of this history. I'm going to escape all of that. Wow. So it's just like, like you say, it's a negation. It's not a negation of a negation. It just stops at the, you know, I reject this thing, but I'm not going to accept the realities that so, come with that. No, that's right. And it's, you know, the other thing, completely subjective, completely individualistic. You know, you say, well, what is the criteria of revolution? What is the criteria of left? Well, because I say I'm left, you know, it's a good important. Yeah, um, uh, so I'm, so this point you're talking about, about the rebellion and revolutionary, I think this is 
I think this is an important thing today because I mean I've been thinking about you know the the, the historical evolution of these theories and how we understand them today. And I found that you know there was this point in I think the the late 50s or or early 60s when you know Satre and Kamu they had this sort of face off. And this was over this treatise of Kamu called the Rebel, mm-hmm. and and so essentially the 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 thesis of Kamu was that you know he was it 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 was categorically an anti-revolutionary stance, and you know he would um, he would go towards rebellion, uh, I mean in in terms of an individual rebellion of of you know an individual who always says no to injustice and all of that. But I think what's missing from that analysis is is an is an understanding of sacrifice because you know and i think like like you know um today to a big extent this is the kind of activism and moral high ground that has seeped into young people because you know, everybody um you know thinks that they are a rebel but this question of sacrifice is is, is nowhere there and i think this yeah this distinction yeah, that, that we're talking about in this conversation, I think it's important for, for people to yeah, think about it because yeah, we, we see it in the Azari reading group <laughs> to a certain extent, if you think, because I mean, but it is uh, what, what I mean, I see it as a, uh, a problem of thought, you know, where the Indian independence movement is completely separated from history, from Indian history and from world history. Mm-hmm. So it is all subjectively, uh, the only criteria of understanding it is subjective. For, for, oh, go ahead, would you go ahead, go ahead, Chambar. No, I, yeah, I think I was done. I mean, I was just, just you know, talking about this, this, yeah, this distinction. I think, yeah, that's one of the things, I mean, I'm just making that connection now, like what it has to do with the kind of activism we see today where the ideas of, of sacrifice is completely missing and people are you know willing to stand up for their causes in all sorts of well really meaningless things like you know google walkouts and things like that but you know there's no i like you know I mean, like this concept of having to pay a price for taking a stand is completely missing and this is really tied with this idea of like an infantile rebellion Versus the revolution and evolution. Mm-hmm. Well, would you say that this is connected to Marcuse's sort of notion of the great refusal? I think so. I think this so. This idea, you know, because it seems like he was the one who was, was he the one who was sort of talking with the student movements? He was when he came to UCLA, yes. And like of young people just generally refusing or rejecting right. all right. of the right. quote-unquote oppressive standards of society. But yeah. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of how you describe like the student movement's response to like the draft and the war in Vietnam, where it was an affront because it affected them personally, but not in relation to, I guess, history, like the role that America should play in the world or anything larger than that. And so it's interesting, I guess, thinking about the Black freedom movement and the philosophies and the ideas that have come out of that, which do seem so tied to Hegel versus like this new left stuff, maybe also, I don't know, like the Black power cultural nationalism, which seems to draw its lineage maybe a little bit more to like Nietzsche. Um, Yeah, but I think the new left thing is pretty. I think think you're very, very right about that. And you know, you know, and a big part of the problem 
is that if you don't understand the black freedom movement, you don't understand the possibility of revolutionary change in the United States. You know, and that's why, you know, the, uh, the right and the bourgeois left always go back to the founding fathers. That was just one revolution. It was the Civil War and Reconstruction, which Du Bois rightly calls the second American Revolution, but then there was a third one. And the new nation, the new, and we all feel it in the free school. And it's just like a, a part of who we are and how we think. The possibility of the new American nation comes out of the Black Freedom Movement of the 60s. And, and all of that theorizing, Martin Luther King's, the Lawson's, the Diane Nash's. I mean, that opens up a whole new stage of struggle, of freedom. And even I was saying, I don't know who I was saying it to. I was saying it, well, Emily again. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther King makes it difficult to be an atheist because if that is Christian, I don't know about being a Muslim, but I mean, <laughs> but you know, I can tell you by the you know, my experience with the Nation of Islam, you know, it the way he talks about God and God in man and man in the divine sense of the of possibility. And it's in it's in Baldwin too. Yeah. It's in Baldwin, the mirror that you know. It's not it's not just, for instance, black folk looking and seeing other black folk. According to Baldwin, black and white see each other as reflective of one another. But that comes out of King, I think. And what does that what does that open up for revolutionary imagination? But then, see, that is the subjective or phenomenological side, right? And that phenomenology is really present throughout the narratives of the Black freedom movement, the phenomenological. That's why the Black-white thing is so important, you know? Because if the two, and especially whites, see themselves in the Black American, they really see themselves. It's very important. And it works. I mean, it's really the the process, the historic process of America becoming a single people. And you know, I... I mean, it's kind of emotional to think about we're closer to that than ever in American history. That's why in the free school, we can talk about a world house. You know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> was, oh, I was talking to Zayu. He says, I feel more American. I said, right, no problem, but understand America. You see what I'm saying? Understand what you're feeling. And this is this is one of the great achievements still being still unfolding of the Black Freedom Movement. And I think the free school got it totally right. I think 
you know, it makes Hegel, it makes Sartre more realizable because you're talking about the universal concrete. You know what I'm saying? Go ahead, man. This is an immense thing that you're talking about, and I, I totally agree. I mean, this is this is part of what I mean. This is what makes this whole endeavor such a special thing to be part of. And uh, I mean, I, I really think this is important, the universal, the abstract concrete. And the universal and, uh, abstract, universal yeah, concrete. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And uh, the historically constituted, you said the historically constituted idea of freedom, historically constituted sense of the American nation. And, uh, and that's why I think it was very significant um, in that, going back to the India-China dollar, the fact that you said <laughs> that in 1959, Du Bois and King, India and China, that's, that's a huge thing. The world needs that. Honestly, the... The more we talk to people from around the world, the more I realize the world needs Du Bois King. It's not just for America. They're truly global revolutionaries, global visionaries. I think for there to be a historically uh, constituted idea, as you said, of the world house, the beloved community of internationalism in the 21st century, that you know that vision has to be there. That contribution of and, and you know and and I hate to say not braggadocio, but the free school got it right. Right, 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 right. That was the, that was such a crucial thing to hold up that banner of Du Bois and Kane when everybody else was running from it, everybody else was abandoning it, everybody else was running to the new trendy thing. This yeah, guy, yeah, that guy, yeah. we stayed firm on Du Bois King, a black radical, black freedom struggle, and you know that. And, and, and so they important. went with such humility and modesty, right, 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 you know, right. they went, I mean, both of them went to learn right, right, and talked right. about, oh, I've learned so much. Right. Du Bois said, Africa learned from China. Right. And he was, right. I want to learn. See, it, see, it's something deeper than deep there. Right, right, right. It's not just, uh, I'm going to China so I can come back and say I'm a revolutionary. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, really, Du Bois understood history mm -hmm. and he understood the China. In fact, Du Bois elevated the Chinese Revolution over the Russian Revolution because he felt that the Chinese Revolution, and it's come, it's being crystallized now, but the Chinese Revolution represented the majority of humanity. Mm -hmm. And King saw the same thing with the Indian independence movement. And that's the heritage we must build upon, no matter how long it takes. The compromise on that would be to sell our souls for nothing. And it, it's, it's almost, um, you know, it, it's a very uh, difficult thing to see a nation where the potential is so great, but yet so much is squandered. And it'd be so easy to get it right. It's right in front of us. <laughs> well, y'all, I have to get ready to leave. No, no, sorry. Go ahead, Michelle. Go ahead. No, no, no. No, I really wasn't. Yeah, next week we'll get to the footnotes and we'll we'll try to finish the what, what number was that footnote? Uh, page six. nine. I, oh, footnote six. Oh, footnote six. And also at the end, there's another very long footnote. Hold it one second. Oh, it's the one that is on the website, right? Yeah, yeah it is on the, it is on the website. 
this very long footnote, footnote nine. The methodological principle of, yeah. Oh, but let me just, because we're talking about uncertainty. What does he say? Well, if you're okay with it, why don't you give it your Bible? Okay. Okay, I'll start. The methodological principle which holds that certitude begins with reflection in no way contradicts in no way contradicts the anthropological principle which defines the concrete person by his materiality. For us, reflection is not reduced to the simple imminence of idealist subjectivism. It is a point of departure, only if it throws us back immediately among things and men in the world. Okay. okay. See, that's attack upon Nietzsche. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Yeah. See, in the concept of certitude, right. certitude is throws us back to kind of uh, abstract universal. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Where you capture it for all time. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll continue next week. I looked at the next sentence, like, we don't have time to get into that one. Uh, yeah. So, okay, next okay. week. Uh -huh.